and welcome to the Origins Podcast. I'm your host, Lawrence Krauss. This podcast is with none other than Richard Dawkins, who of course needs no introduction. And many of you have been asking for a podcast between me and Richard for some time, and I'm happy to finally be presenting it. Richard and I actually began preparing this podcast about two years ago when we had a discussion at his house about his early life and his early period in science and writing The Selfish Gene. And uh, some of that that dialogue is included in this podcast. And then we brought it up today, today, as we were able to have a wonderful discussion about his new books, in particular his book, Flights of Fancy, which is really about flying in all of its different forms in the animal kingdom and beyond. And it is a beautiful book. And one I actually thought I knew what was in it because he and I had talked about it when he was writing it. And uh, we discussed some of the physics, but it's far more than just physics. And the discussions about how flying is implemented in different ways uh, in nature is just remarkable and fascinating to read. And there are beautiful illustrations by Jana Lenzova uh, as well that match the, uh, the, the text uh, uh, perfectly. So the discussion was delightful about that and science more generally in the current world and will serve as a, a lovely prelude, I think, to a public event that Richard and I are doing for the Origins Project Foundation in Phoenix, November 15th, where we'll carry on the discussion we began here. Now, you can watch this uh, podcast without ads by subscribing to our Substack site, Critical Mass, uh, and those subscriptions will go on supporting the Origins Project Foundation itself. Or you can watch the podcast on our YouTube channel, or you can listen to it anywhere podcasts are, can be listened to. So no matter how you watch or listen to it, I'm sure you'll enjoy the remarkable science popularizer, Richard Dawkins, and, as, and I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. Thanks. Well, Richard, it's always good to be with you and, uh, and fun to be here. Likewise. Uh, in, in, in fact, you know, it, I was just reminded that it's the fifth year anniversary of the wide release of The Unbelievers, so it's really nice. You cannot be serious. Seriously, yeah, yeah. That's so, so it's Jesus, okay. <laughs> time passes. Yeah. But speaking of time passing, actually, I wanted to start, I can't resist but look, notice that, that that painting there is familiar, and it's, it's, it was from... The, the cover of the selfish gene yes vice that, versa. that is called the expectant valley it's a painting by desmond morris who's equally famous as a zoologist yes uh, as, as an artist yeah and um when we were the first, selfish gene was my first book and needed mm. a good good cover for it and the selfish gene has a kind of science fictiony feel to it yeah it's all about kind of reproduction and biology in a general almost extraterrestrial way it doesn't have to be the way it is on this planet, it's, it's a general theory that is going to be true wherever there's life. And so something a bit science fiction-y like that is called the Expectant Valley, which is right. Uh-huh. Um, it's got a nice green patch at the top right, which is a good place to put the title. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> so um, when the publisher, Michael Rogers, and I saw it, we decided that was just the thing. And um, so we put it on the cover and then... The advance that Oxford University Press gave me is a bit smaller than the sort of advances I get nowadays. Um, happened to be exactly the same as the price of that painting in an exhibition that Desmond was having at the same time. So Perfect. I bought it, and he was a bit embarrassed that I bought it, and so he threw in this other painting at the same time. Oh, uh, okay. So you got two for Somewhat one. similar, yes. Wow. Well, it just was so f nice to see it there, and what a wonderful remembrance of an amazing 
book that's had an amazing impact. As long as we're starting with the talking about the selfish gene, you talked about whether you cha- change the word selfish. Yes. Actually, the the main second edition was much older than that. It was in, I think, 1989. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's when I put a lot of new stuff in. The 40th anniversary one was actually hardly changed at all. Um, uh, But mm, the title was the one thing I didn't change. Yeah, yeah, but you thought about it. Yes. Um, It could equally have been called the altruistic individual. Yeah, that would. I'm glad you didn't change it to the. Or the cooperative gene. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, The original suggestion, when I went to see a publisher before finally settling on OUP, Mm -hmm. another publisher, Jonathan Cape, Mm -hmm. um, the editor there, the sort of chief editor there, suggested the immortal gene, which I think actually would have been pretty good. I, I'm, yeah, I, I'm sorry I, not to have had that. I was thinking about that. I, I read that, and, and I thought, well, I still think the shellfish gene is... I mean, it's more provocative. You're right, it gives the the misimpression, perhaps, but... It, but but uh, Don't you think the immortal gene is more sort of romantic and more kind of Sagan-esque? Yeah. Well, it's yeah, clearly oh, more Sagan-esque, but yeah, but... yeah, well, I guess, yeah, it probably is. I think for your second book it might have been, but but to, for a breakout book, okay. the selfish yeah. gene, what it does, the immortal gene, I mean, the selfish gene gets you asking, what what is this all about, the selfish gene? Yeah. And I mean, it's, yeah. and I think that, and in the end, it's re- I think what's really good about that is it frames evolutionary biology in the context of what it should be, which is that 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 it's not... It's not individuals, it's not species, it's, it's genes. Yeah, and, but you have to read the book. It's not good enough just yeah. to read the title. And I'm yeah, that's and, that, and as you pointed out, I noticed that many critics uh, tend yes. just to read the title. I've yes. discovered yes. that. It's true for everything, including well, uh, incl- articles, books. They, 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 they read the title and then they decide what you've done. But, but I, I, anyway, I think The Selfish Gene was the perfect title, and I just, I'm just inspired by being there with mm. that. What... Um, but you did say, in fact, you just mentioned it's a very science fiction book. I noticed that, again, I was just reading the preface, and you said the first the first words in the book are, this book should be read almost as though it were science fiction. And that's what you meant by it. It's, it, it yes, that's right. I mean, it's, it's supposed to be general. I, I'm very fascinated by what life has to be like mm-hmm. anywhere in the universe, rather than what life actually happens to be like on this planet. And so that's what I meant by the science fiction-y flavor of it. Well, you know, I know I've been with you. In fact, it's interesting. Now that we're in the era of exoplanets, uh, I think, uh, I think you, well, you said it, and I think it's true. It, it, life, it's, it, one could not, um, one could imagine, I suppose, but it's, what, it's hard to imagine in a realistic sense, life anywhere not being governed by natural selection, right? I mean, that's the, the, the now, whether it's, whether it's the same DNA or ATP or all the, all the basic components of biology is different, but do you? I think we may. I may have asked this once before, but do you think that it's likely that, li- assuming there's life elsewhere in the universe, that it has a different genetic code? Yes, uh, I'm pretty confident it's going to be Darwinian. Mm-hmm. I'm pretty confident that there'll there'll have to be some sort of genetic code, and it'll have to be digital mm-hmm. and highly accurate, high, very high fidelity. Um, I think it'll have to be one dimensional or two dimensional, but not three. Mm-hmm. So we can sort of make quite a few guesses, yeah, yeah. Um, plausible guesses. I'd be very surprised if it was DNA. Well, I'd be totally surprised if it was the same genetic code, but I wouldn't be totally surprised if it was it was also DNA. If it so it was based on yeah, if, uh, you know, I, I I was talking to George Church recently, and he said we've been able to artificially create 
new sequences that aren't just you know the 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 four letters of the, of our genetic code. I, w- I don't know if we'll both be around, but I'd like to make a bet that it's the same. I, I, I think, I, I can't help but think that it, it could have just been an accident that life picked those, but I think chemistry, certainly chemistry determines biology at some level, and I suspect that life found the chemically most preferred set. But... Well, there are various levels of this. Um, maybe you'd be right that it's going to be a triplet code. Yeah, yeah. But I... I... Bet anything you like, it won't be the same genetic code. Anything I like, okay. Yeah. Well, I saw your Tesla there. <laughs> <laughs> okay, it'll be interesting. I, I'd love it if we, you know, I was going to say if we knew this in our lifetime, but we'll talk today. There's so many things that I thought would never be observed in my lifetime uh, that have been observed, uh, and maybe we'll get to black holes and other things, but... So maybe we'll know. Maybe we'll get, I don't know how we'll know, but but it would be wonderful. Well, I would, I mean, I'd be, if extraterrestrial life was actually discovered and we could actually look at what the yeah. genetic code. I'd love that. I mean, yeah, yeah. Well, exciting. I mean, I think we may, I think it's quite likely we may discover evidence of extraterrestrial life by looking at at spectral signatures from planets. But boy, not being able to see genetic code, that would require probably a sample and that's going to be a little hard. If it was Mars, then yeah. the same genetic code, then I would say that's contamination. Yeah, but if what if it's Europa and, and it was the same genetic code? That's the, it's true that you know, no planet is an island, and I think it's really important. Uh, was discovered. Well, when I, I remember when 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 um, Bill Clinton had that press conference in in the White House about that rock, that that meteor that had, uh, meteorite that had been discovered from Mars and that had been sectioned, and they discovered what they thought were were fossils of early life. The consensus is that it's probably not biological, uh, but it made it clear, and what we've learned about uh, uh, extremophiles is that life can survive inside rocks. Certainly, uh, microbes could in extreme environments. So, if life originated as it did in our solar system anywhere, and we know it did on Earth, it would certainly pollute other systems, and that's why. Our- well, I think if it was the same genetic code, that would be for me positive evidence that it is contamination, and and. I mean, if it was Mars, that's very plausible. If it's Enceladus or Europa, yeah. it's harder to believe. But nevertheless, it's even harder to believe that the same genetic code would have arisen twice. I'm so confident. The more I've, and I don't, I'm not an expert in biochemistry. That the energetics of 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 chemistry must have, must it do, does govern life, and and it could be just random four random nucleotides. But but I I suspect there must be a reason why those four. But we'll see. Well, I think it'll be a bit like human language, where there's an awful lot that's in common between different mm-hmm. human languages, but the same language. I mean, uh, if, if 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 English had arisen totally independently in mm-hmm. South America and and in, yeah. uh, in the old world, that would be you, you just don't believe that that would happen. What? But but of of course we know that all human language has has a certain base in common. Yeah, we, I was talking to Noam Chomsky. Course, was, yes, was, yeah. yeah, no, that's true, I guess. I, so I, at, the, at that level, I mean, something similar to Chomsky and universality, I would, I, would, I would agree with you, but not the same genetic code. Well, the question, let's say, I don't know if, this, if the biochemists have done this, but let's say you had four different base pairs. Would, the, would DNA be as stable? Would, you know, the, the, the question is that I don't know the answer to is the energetics of whether that particular set allows you to form a double helix more efficiently than four other base fares. And, and, you know, I don't know. But. I don't know either, but I doubt it. Okay, well, it'll be wonderful <laughs> to discover. One of us will get a nice gift, but it's nice to find something we disagree about. But uh, 
well, speaking about what we might discover, does what what's the most interesting thing you've been hearing in science lately? Well, obviously, the photographing the black hole. Yeah. Um, and um, uh, I suppose because I was professor of public understanding of science, I get asked questions, even though I'm not a physicist, mm-hmm. I'm not an astronomer. Um, and um, yesterday I was asked, the day before I was asked by somebody at lunch, um, how come it's red? So I said, well, I don't think that's a real color. I, th- I think it's a virtual color. I think it's a, a, a conventional color. That's, that's, yeah, it's radio telescopes. That are, it's so a it's, false exactly, color image. It's, it's, it's radio telescopes, so it's, so it's false color. I think I do understand how you can use eight telescopes from around the world to act as uh, make one virtual telescope, one huge, great, big yeah. virtual dish. It's which, easier in the radio. At least it's been done efficiently in the radio. But yeah, it still amazes me because you have to, you basically, you can't just, they have to operate not independently at all. They have to be totally coupled and, and because you're looking for what's called phase information, which is the, not just the individual. Okay, and you can't couple them directly. You've got to, you've got to have a, a clock running in all, all eight places. Yeah, so exactly. So you know exactly the same time and the, and yeah. the atomic clocks. So the other fascinating thing I read was that the, the data is so huge that it actually had to be transported physically. Yeah, physically. Gigantic. Yeah number of hard disks yeah petabytes i i heard that it was more than i mean i'm always talk, amazed about the amount of information the lhc records and i've heard that it, in some comparison to the to the information in a in a in a collider it was a large fraction it's a it's an it's a as i said i think recently tweet it's a it's a triumph of, of human ingenuity um and by the way the only i think when you talk about the colors uh, the false colors the only f- color that isn't false I, I don't think is the black part in the middle yeah, sure, yeah. <laughs> and that it's uh, i have to say i mean from a point of view of 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 uh, leading us in new directions well there's lots of interesting astrophysics of of what what might orbit around black holes and it looks remarkable in fact it looks eerily like it, people thought it, such a such a system should look it's an immense black hole it's like seven uh billion solar masses almost a fair seven percent of the mass of our entire galaxy and there's all sorts of stuff falling in and, and and incredible that the fireworks on the outside from from things emitting light and light traveling around it uh but it's the um, kind of thing that makes me proud to be human i, I yeah I, I i just love it and ligo is the same it, yeah it's, it's just, just amazing that we can do that in a galaxy 55 million light years away and I have to say, as one who, from a physics perspective, I've always been dubious about black holes. I, uh, it's just am- eerily amazing to see the, the the darkness of the black hole. Of course, it could be an object that strongly resembles a black hole in other ways, but it's just, it's amazing. Well, it's amazing that science works so well. I mean, it's just, it would be, as you, as you say, uh, to me, if we discovered a life form elsewhere and discovered you know, that the rules that we apply to the evolution of life on Earth work extremely well there. You wouldn't be surprised. Oh. But it, but, but, but it, would, be, uh, it would be an amazing testament to the triumph of, of, of the human... Well, in the case of physics, I'd be surprised if it wasn't the same, but in the yeah. case of biology... Right. I th- I, well, no, it, I don't mean exactly the same. I mean, just mean Darwinian selection, et cetera, et cetera, that there was diversity in the planet, yes. exactly. And I think it's astonishing that, that, that an animal that, that evolved... In, in Africa to hunt and gather yeah. is capable of doing this kind yeah, of thing. It's, it's, just, it's just a very, very wonderful thing. It, it, it makes me very proud to be human. It, 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 is, it, it, it is amazing. I mean, I, as, a, as a theoretical physicist, I'm always amazed what, what experimentalists could do. But 
the fact that we can do this is part of the triumph of our culture. And, and, and it's lovely that it's international as well. It's yeah. Oh, in this case, it was, at, well, it had to be exactly. And yeah. It's wonderful. Science brings pe- people together internationally, speak different languages, different cultures, but every, all those telescopes had to work and time things to the same microsecond to be able to, to or even better, to be able to uh, uh, amass that data and, and combine it. And, and, and science is a wonderful example for culture. People, Bringing people together, whereas religion pushes them apart. Exactly. It's, it's and people stark. And, and, and somehow, you know, it, it surprises me when people talk about scientism and, 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 and trying to ride science as an example for our culture. That, in fact, uh, it, it, it does what we want human culture to do. It, it, it brings up, it raises the human spirit. It, it's it's democratic in in many ways. It's it, it's based on free inquiry and 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 mutual respect. And it also works. Yes, <laughs> which I think is so. It, it, it as a triumph of culture. I'm really happy to see it, whenever and again with LIGO. It's nice to see the the public enthusiasm because as a, as someone who's communicated science and and uh, certainly. Uh, on television as well, I'm I'm always surprised that that people think that, especially TV producers, that people aren't interested in science. But people are fascinated by this stuff when they can see a a picture like that, and it draws all of humanity together. The the the, the astronauts when they, when I was a kid, the astronauts landed the moon. That was something else that drew people together. It wasn't quite science. It was done more for for national pride than which science. is a pity. I mean, it, it, but I think LIGO is a much better example, and yeah. the photographing the black hole is a much better example. Oh yeah, exactly. It's, it's and, and, and CERN and the, and the Large Hadron Collider. And people will say, "What? Well, you know, why should we spend money on that?" And mm. and and I think that bottom line is, it's not. I mean, in global sense, it's not a lot of money. It's it's a lot of money for an individual. Although individuals could do it now, and 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 we may rely on rich individuals in the future to fund science, like we did in the in the Renaissance when we have patrons. In fact, we are to some extent. Rich individuals or are funding science in certain certain ways. Well, the space rockets are going going yeah. private now. Yeah, it's, uh, to go back to the selfish gene, I was reading at least one of the one of the introductions again, where you talk, where someone sent you a note saying that they they first read it and it had basically destroyed their life. Yes. <laughs> so somehow finding out that we're not, you know, that 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 we're not special somehow affects affects people in a negative way too. I think. I think it's. Tragic that somebody should have their life ruined by a purely academic. It doesn't actually change anything about your life. You still get up in the morning. You still eat your meals and do whatever it is you want to do. You do not have to have your life ruined by some academic discovery or theory. Well, in fact, it should be the opposite. But it's yeah. hard to know whether. I mean, I, I think it 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 should cause us to reflect on what would ruin our lives. Yeah. If if um, I think something like for me, it would be something like if. I found myself in a world where nobody cared about truth anymore. Um, <laughs> oh, I'm, I'm a little worried about the world right now. Yes, I mean, well, of course, in, in in American politics, you're in exactly in that precise situation. But nevertheless, that's still a, a minority, and so science doesn't. But if nobody cared about yeah. scientific truth, yeah. if all they cared about was what makes you feel good mm-hmm. rather than what is actually true then I think I would not want to go on living. Interesting. Well, interesting, because, well, let me throw it back at you, because we live in a world where, at this point, I think, still a majority of people are religious, which is basically 
for many of them, feeling good, right? Didn't didn't I mean the Richard Dawkins Foundation in in England did a sur- did a survey of the people who said they were they were Christian, and didn't most of the people who basically said why they were Christian? It wasn't doctrinaire. It was basically they wanted to feel like good people, right? Yes, that's right. They they thought that you couldn't be moral, and well, they they thought I want to. Th- think of myself as a good person. And for them, that's what Christian actually means. Yeah, so so we do uh, kind of live in a world where most people wa- feel good, are, are happy to feel good. But the, yes. I suppose the part, point is those people are also still interested in truth. We, yes, it's not, it's not it, like not being interested in truth. I yeah, think. because people can believe in two opposite things at the same time. So most people who call themselves religious also accept the reality of much of science that in fact, demonstrates that much of the precepts you, you, of religion... You, can, you will meet people in anthropology departments and sociology departments who will say something like, uh, scientific truth is just one particular version of truth. It's patriarchal, white, um, um, yeah. all that stuff. Um, and if a, if a tribe in the Pacific believes that, um, that, the, that the moon is just a few feet above the treetops, then... That is true in on that particular island, uh, um, and it's okay if, if all they mean by that is that that's compatible with the culture of that people, and that's fine. But but they sometimes go as far as to say, no, it is actually true that scientific truth is no more true yeah. than that. That's that I, I think is extremely dangerous. Uh, 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 yes, I mean it's dangerous for many reasons because because once again. The best thing about science, that the reason it's worth the whole process, and by science I mean the process of science, is that it works. Yeah. And if you deny the fact that, if you accept that any anyone's any imagination works as well or is equally valid, you'll make predictions and you'll take actions that are just silly, right? Yes. And I've, I have, I've had this debate with a few people, including in, at one time a friend Noam Chomsky, who said to me that he doesn't care what people think, it's what they do that matters. But the problem is there's this incredible coupling between what people think and what they do, and which is one of the reasons, I assume, you find religion evil, right? Yes. I, I mean, not all religion is evil. Yeah, some yeah. of it is, and some of it's much more evil than others. I mean, yeah. It does annoy me the way people say, well, it's all, it's all evil. Yeah, okay. It's, it's not. I mean, some is much more evil than others. Um, but I do feel passionately about truth, and, and I think there is such a thing as truth, and I think that's what science is about. Uh, and that these fancy intellectuals in non-scientific departments who really deny truth and mm-hmm. say tr- truth is a cultural artifact or yeah. something like that, um, that I think is really, really pernicious. Yeah, it's almost more dangerous because they have the, the umbrella of scholarship yeah, instead yes. of just mere ignorance. Yes. And Well, they are ignorant. I, I think in a way, if they understood science, they would, they, at least the, the scientific process, they wouldn't speak as they do. But Yeah, I think there's a certain amount of sort of it, it's too much hard work to learn science, and so and so. Yeah, you know, it. and that's an interesting thing as well. I I I, I was. Uh, it it is hard work to to do, learn science, but it, it's really hard work to learn anything. And and uh, I don't. Uh, how do you feel about this? I, I it it happens to be in my bonnet that that people are willing to basically when it comes to science, they're willing to just give up easily. I'd say I I don't because it's. The illusion is that it's impossible to understand. I'm not even going to try. But people will try and understand history or economics or, or I mean, work very hard. And, yes. and, it's, and, and there's lots of things that are not easy in life or, or even learn music or whatever. It's a kind of double standard where you can actually almost 
gain prestige by saying, "Oh, I'm, I can't, I can't do science. I'm yeah. hopeless at mathematics." And, yeah. and but you never, you'd never say, "I'm proud of," you know, not 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 knowing who wrote Macbeth or something. And, exactly. Yeah. You know. And and yet you can be considered literate for for being for being quote non mathematical. Part of the problem, by the way, in my opinion, is biology, yeah. because because and I don't know if it's done this way in England. But in the United States, what they generally do in many places, although it's changing, is is teach biology before chemistry and chemistry before physics, which means most kids never get to physics. And the argument, and there are many arguments that I've heard. One is that biology is more innate in the sense it deals with things we can see and and we you know frogs and things we, but but modern biology, of course, is is far removed from that in many ways. But also the notion that somehow you need preparation that physics is harder. And that's why people never get there. But the problem is it gives a co- complete misrepresentation of science. Because, And the reason I actually, frankly, I remember dropping biology is when I took it, it was very different than now, but I, it was memorizing the parts of a frog. It was memorizing this and that. Mm. And But the basis of biology is chemistry, and the basis of chemistry and phys- is physics. So we really should teach things in the other order, because if you learn physics first, then you'd learn about energy, and energetics is, is crucial. It's crucial for understanding chemistry, but indeed chemistry and the energetics of chemistry is biology, right? And so it would mean less rote, less accepting things on faith, and more understanding about the process by which we we understood. Yes, you don't have to. uh, I mean, you you can reject learning by by rote, and I do, Mm -hmm. without necessarily getting into physics and energetics and Mm -hmm. chemistry and mathematics. Um, I've always worried that textbooks of biology... Put the evolution chapter last, yeah, and it should come first because otherwise it, nothing makes sense. Um, so um, you don't actually have to do physics if if you do it. You can do biology the right way round and not just memorize the the parts of a frog. I mean, who wants to memorize the parts of a frog if you don't know what it's all for? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, it's it's it to. Understand the context of what of why you're learning what you're learning and be motivated to to know that. I mean, it's somewhat the same in f- introductory physics. You learn these awful things like you probably did, like sliding down an inclined plane and never. I don't think of, that's awful. I think that's rather nice. I, I like that. You like that? Yeah. Okay. Mm. Okay. Well, there you go. You, but why why did you go into biology then, not physics? Uh, I kind of drifted. I mean, yeah. my, my father was a biologist. I oh. had an inspiring biology teacher. That that'll do it. Um, and I, I finally just kind of realized that the, the big questions like why are we here and and why why are we so elegantly designed? Why why do we look like mm-hmm. well functioning machines? Um, that's an evolution question, and, and sure. I've always been totally fascinated by those existential questions. Always it was, but you said you had a good teacher. Were, were there one or two teachers who specifically influenced you that in a in a really important way? Um, yes, uh, Johan Thomas, uh, mm-hmm. who's actually just died two days ago, oh. and which I'm that sorry about. Um, yeah, he he was inspiring, but I think my father too uh, kind of introduced me to evolution. Really? Mm. Tell me about that story. It's the one I've never heard from you. So. Well, he he read botany at Oxford, and uh, so I, when we were going for walks and things and cliffs and mm-hmm. by the seaside and things, we were talking about biology a lot. And uh, 
I think it was he who first explained Darwinism to me. Oh, really? Did it did it strike you as immediately natural or did no? <laughs> no, I didn't believe it, uh, and it took it took me a while to. I thought it it I sort of I got the point, but I didn't think it was a big enough theory to account for um, the complexity of life, and I only later realized that it is. In as an undergraduate or graduate or no, a little bit earlier than when I was still at school. You're yeah. still in high school. Yeah. What was your father? So did your was your father a praxy biologist or was it? it well, he's kind of. I mean, he would he as I say he he reread botany in yeah. Oxford. He then did a, a master's at Cambridge, and then he um, went into the colonial service as oh, that, a, which, agricultural. Which scientist. is why you were born born uh, yeah. where you were. Okay, okay, as, okay. So there was that background. It's yes. interesting. And did you ever think of being a doctor? No, no, never. No, I didn't. Oh well, okay. He never said. I mean, I couldn't. I couldn't stand it. it, it yeah. It's that. That really is learning facts. Yeah. No. I. I. Well, I've already told you this. That yeah, my mother wanted me to be a doctor, and yes. it was only. And she made the mistake, I think, at the time of saying doctors were scientists, because neither of my parents went finished high school really, and I got enamored by science. Anyway, I don't know if it's a chicken and egg kind of thing, but I was certainly enamored by science at quite a young age, and the thought of being a doctor scientist was really. Really exciting to well, me. I think the best doctors are scientists, and uh, but but you can't become a doctor without memorizing yeah. huge numbers of yeah, and, uh, facts. That's yeah. That that was that's why I became a physicist because I didn't like to memorize facts. It's, I mean, or, I I certainly couldn't. You the, you don't have to memorize anything if you're a physicist. Who was I listening to the other day? It was a Nobel Prize winning physicist, and he said the reason I became a physicist was that I could only remember. Ten facts. Yeah. Well, <laughs> well, I mean, ex- that's what's great about physics. You don't, in principle, you don't have to memorize anything. Well, I, uh, that's not true. <laughs> well, you know Newton's laws, and then if you're really good enough, if you're Feynman, you can just derive everything from that. Yes. But, yeah. And what do you think about Feynman's father used to walk with him in the woods? And I, I remember this struck me because uh, I'm not good at the names of things, and I partly because I think I'm I'm colorblind, and and therefore. When it comes to birds and things, uh, I would have always liked to know what they were, but I never, I sort of gave up. But he, he asked his father what the name of a, of, of a bird was, and, and the father said, well, the name doesn't matter. The name is just, what matters is how it behaves, how it reproduces. All, all, names aren't important. Of course, we, we name things in, in, in physics as well as in biology. But what really matters is observing a behavior. I wonder, you know, sort, sort of... Uh, well, I've never been good at names, I must confess, and and my father was, and and so he he was very good on names of all the wildflowers and, oh. and birds too, um, and it's always been a matter of regret to me. Y- you do need to know the names because yes. when you study the behaviour and things, it actually makes a difference. But I kind of get the point Feynman's father was making. Well, it's funny that you say you're not good now. I mean, I, when we've been together, you always seem to know at least, well, maybe you're not good, but you're much better than me at naming birds when we're together and things like well, that. Well, no, you see, when when I've been on the Galapagos, for example, I've done that quite a lot of times yeah. now, and I, I give lectures in the evening on, on the boat, sure, sure. As, as, you, as I did in your, your trip. Um, but the actual naming of which bird is which is done by the local, in yes. this case, Ecuadorian guides who are superb. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And, and um, so I, I have a kind of symbiotic relationship with them. Um, but it's it's no good when I go on those trips. People asking me what's that bird. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm getting better at it now. <laughs> so you never you never have you been tempted to be a bird watcher ever? Or? 
I enjoy it. I take yeah. binoculars when I go out. Yeah, um, sure. And, and I, I, I like watching birds. But I, I don't, I'm not a twitcher who, who, who has a, a, a list of the birds, the species that I've seen. I, I don't drive 100 miles across the country yeah. because somebody rings me up and says there's a lesser spotted boo. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> exactly. What about, what about gardening? What about plants and things? Again, you see, for me, it's just I, the world used to divide between, I'm embarrassed to say this, but there were sort of trees and grass and plants and animals. And that was yes. kind of my, that was sort of. Well, you, know, you know the rule in the British Army. In the Army, we have three kinds of trees, fir, poplar, and bushy top. <laughs> Well, Richard, it is wonderful to be back with you uh, again, at least virtually. And uh, although uh, I'm here in cool Prince Edward Island and you're there in hot England, but... Uh, it's hotter than it's ever been, hotter than ever been in history. Yeah, that's right. Well, I suppose you can think of that a lucky time to be alive then. And well. prob- probably not hotter than it was in the Carboniferous, as we'll get to it, but but probably England was in England then, so it's okay. Yeah. Um, and uh, uh, we... Uh, Normally, as you know, as you may know, in these origins podcasts, I like to talk about personal origins. But happily, you and I have had um, a discussion about that uh, when we recorded a, the big, the first part of this podcast uh, several years ago, actually, in your in your place in Oxford. So we can we can dispense with that. But I did want to ask you one question because uh, I want to talk. What I'd like to talk about today are your two recent books, uh, "Flights of Fancy" and um, "Books Do Furnish a Life," and uh, which. Which I really enjoyed, actually, uh, as I'll t- as I'll mention in a moment. I was kind of so pleasantly surprised in both cases. Uh, Couldn't be surprised, Lawrence. Well, uh, well, I thought I knew what it, they were. No, no, not that I. They were wonderful. I knew uh, that they'd be wonderful. But I, I thought I knew what would what what would be in them, and uh, and I was surprised because there was so okay. much more, and and that was wonderful. I mean, we. You know, I talked to you earlier about the, the flights of fancy when we talked about some physics uh, questions that you yes. had early on. And I thought, okay, well, I now having talked to Richard about that, I know what's in the book. And then then I discovered that that was just scratching the surface. But but the books to furnish a life, which is about reading and writing, didn't I don't remember if I asked you this question, but I who what popular science writer did you first read? Did you did you I mean, or a scientist did you read? Um, when, because I was thinking about that. Yes, probably Peter Meadowar, to whom the book is dedicated. Um, and I, I knew of his name because he'd been a school friend of my father, as a matter of fact. Oh. So I knew, his, I knew his name from childhood. And I met him a few times and he was the most marvelous writer. I mean, he had a wonderful wit, uh, a rather sort of lofty patrician wit. Yeah. Um, and uh, arrogant, but got away with it. Ar- arrogant, but with <laughs> justification. <laughs> um, and, and I hope I don't emulate that, but, no. but, um, but he is, he's lovely to read. He, who, as a scientist writer, absolutely. I remember he wrote something like memoirs of a, a thinking radish or something like yes, that. He, that. That's one of his books. I remember that's one I have. Mostly essays and, and, uh, wonderful essays. In fact, we'll get to Medivar because when we, when we, when we, uh, later on, because I, I, yeah, I was, uh, I was taken by, uh, for me, actually, one of the reasons I write is I, when I read people I thought were great scientists who were wonderful writers, that always had an impact on me. And did that, did that, did he serve as in any way as a role model for your writing in, in any, in any way? Sort of, but as I say, I hope I don't <laughs> You're not emulate the arrogance. <laughs> I don't have justification for it. 
Um, but but yes, I mean, he, he, I suppose in some way he, he was he was a role model. And um, I again, I can't remember if I asked you this, but I can't help but thinking, what made you decide to write in the first place? I suppose, well, as an Oxford student, you have to write an essay every week. Mm-hmm. And um, so I got into the way of, into the habit of writing and thinking about what, to, what I was writing about. And um, I suppose, well, I wrote The Selfish Gene in 1975, and uh, I was motivated to write that by the fact that group selection, the group selection fallacy was so widespread, especially in popular science writing. Yeah. And I thought I had a much better way of expressing what's wrong with that, which is the genes I view. Yeah, sure. So I, I, I wrote that in quite a sort of fever of excitement. Oh, well, okay. Well, I, that's interesting. That comes across, the excitement comes across. It certainly, it was a great idea. And, um, um, and uh, you know, I want to talk in some sense, because we'll talk about writing, ideas behind writing books. And I, I do want to turn to this beautiful book, which is beautiful in many ways. It's not just beautiful to read, but the the, the illustrations right by Jana are are marvelous, and 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 um, it's one of those books that you shouldn't just listen to, but uh, but but look at because of the beautiful illustrations. Yeah, it's nice you should say that, and 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 um, of course I, I appreciate Jana's illustrations as well. But Anthony Cheatham, the publisher whom you know, um, confided in us that he's re- he reckons that the the future of books, uh, printed books, depends upon their being beautiful. Ah. If you just want to read a book, you can read it, or you can read a Kindle, and you can, you yeah. can or, or audio book. But to actually own a book, to want to own a book mm-hmm. and feel it in your hands, it's got to be beautiful. And so he's he's dedicated to the, to producing books that people find beautiful to, to actually possess. Oh well, that's wonderful. Well, I, I I'm I'm excited because, as you know, my next book is Anthony's publishing. I, I know, yes the, yes. the cover is beautiful. I've they come up with a beautiful cover, but um, it is it it. You know, I was actually this is kind of an aside, but I was actually surprised. I don't know how they did it, given the quality of the color illustrations. I had expected this book to be incredibly expensive, and it's not. And I I don't know how they did it. I'm surprised too. I I agree with you, and I'm delighted by it. Yeah, no, it's wonderful. Well, it, it is, as I said uh, Earl, uh, to you, I, I thought I was, uh, I thought I knew what the book was about because we talked about some of the physics, but, but it, it was so much more and it was so charm. It's full of charming stories. It, it, it I think, it, I, I don't know if it's the most, um, it, 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 if it's the most sort of colloquial kind of book that you've written, but it's, it's, it, I feel like, like their bedtime stories almost when I'm, when I'm, okay, reading. Yes. and, yeah. and, um, and for me also, you see, I, I'm such an ignoramus when it comes to zoology and much of biology that, that every time I learn about what animals do, it's amazing. And I love the way that you um, merge that, that you merge uh, the, 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 the stories of specific animals with questions of flight. So you, you began by saying that, and it's true, everyone's had dreams of flying and, um, I'm wondering if did that motivate this book? What motivated this book? I don't think that did motivate it really, uh, although it is the first chapter. I think um, I, I wrote a book for children a few years ago called *The Magic of Reality*, mm-hmm. uh, which um, could, each chapter is a separate question. 
some of which involve physics. Uh, a separate question like, what is an earthquake? What is the sun? Why do we have winter and summer? Why do we have night and day? That kind of thing. And um, so there are 10 chapters, each of them beginning, each of them having a question like that, and then beginning with mythical answers to those put to the questions. And then finally, homing in on the true scientific answer. And um, I sort of thought about having perhaps a, a new edition, a, 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 say a second volume of that, mm -hmm. with 10 more questions. The first question I thought of was, was flight, and that grew into a book. <laughs> yeah, so. enough questions for a whole book. Yeah, no, in fact, I remember that, um, that other book, because that was a book we spent a lot of time together talking about, because there was a lot of physics in that earlier book. Yes, that's right, that's right. Yes. And um, um, yeah, no, flying turns out to be a wonderful hook to be able to talk about a lot of different subjects. That's what kind of surprised me. It's not, I mean, it is about flying, but it but it allows one to talk about so many different things besides physics and biology from, well, and and, and the details of, of evolution and lovely, as I say, stories about animals. The first chapter is, or is sort of the first part of it, which is, is it, is what is flight good for? We, asked as an evolutionary question. Now, again, and I think I was pleased to see that because, because one of the things you do so well is dis is dispense with people's misconceptions about evolution in 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 your on much of your speaking and writing and the word good is something that that um means yeah. something very different and so maybe you could talk about that a little bit well good in 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 darwinian terms means good for the genes that that program the development of the organ concerned in this case wings and tails and flight surfaces and sense organs that are involved and so uh, what is the good of flight? How does it benefit the genes of the animal? How does it benefit the, the future prospects of the genes of the animal? Future prospects is perhaps not a good way to put it, but the animal is the product of past natural selection, natural selection in the past. And so it is a machine, a beautifully designed machine for preserving genes because it comes from a long line of ancestors whose genes were preserved that's why they became ancestors. <laughs> um, and and um, so, so, so yes, yeah, so, so you can regard an animal as a beautifully designed machine for passing on its genes. And the details of how it does that in the case of flight are things like finding food, um, escaping from predators, uh, finding a good place to build a nest, all that kind of thing, migrating long distances and so on. And reproduction, I mean, and finding mates as well. And I mean, I, I yes. was thinking early on, you say, okay, so good means what, what, how does flight allow um, genes to, to, to propagate, in other words, and, and, and yes. it means animals to reproduce and the feeding, reproduction, escape from predators, etc. There's one thing you didn't mention, and I, I don't know if it, but it harkens back to, it came, occurred to me anyway, it harkens back to what you said about we all dream of flying and how wonderful it is. Has anyone, has anyone ever done a study? It, it must be fun. Has anyone done a study to see if there are hormonal releases like oxytocin or something in, when, to encourage animals to fly? I mean, because it must, I, you look at them there and I, and I wonder if anyone's ever thought about that. I, I, I have no idea about, about that. I'm not sure it's ever been looked at. Um, it, it is tempting to think that birds are having fun when they fly. I mean, if, if you watch, uh, seagulls especially I find I love watching seagulls and soaring in the wind and 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 diving and, and it looks as though they're having fun you could always put a utilitarian spin on that by saying sure. they're they're practicing yeah sure improving their their skill 
Um, but I don't object to thinking of their having fun. It's just that you can't actually test it. Well, yeah, no, but I was thinking, uh, and I'm getting ahead a little bit, but we, you know, one talks about the economics of evolution, that it's a compromise often between trying, between trying to do things that work, but most economically, and economically meaning sort of least expenditure of energy and things like that. But I was wondering whether, um, literally, whether, you know, when one thinks about the biological, the, the genetic developments that would encourage animals to fly, uh, you know, uh, that whether there might literally be a hormonal argument that literally might be that there may be hormones released that make the animal f like to fly, but I don't know. I, I, there, I, there, there is, is it could be, but, but yes, I don't anyway. think it's been up Anyway, you, you, one of the things you point out, and I remember hearing you talk about this, is this aerial arms race that, that basically, yeah, animals learn how to fly to escape from predators, and then, and then, and then some predators learn how to capture flying animals and it's an arms race and eventually evolution produces as we'll talk about um animals that can fly really really well and not because they were designed but because well why don't you go into yeah. it well um if, if it wasn't for arms races then then animal adaptations would be nothing like so beautiful as, as they are i mean to some extent um animal adaptations are just towards the weather i mean toward to, yeah. towards some um, so surviving in the inanimate world. But when you've got an enemy that's also evolving, then you have a positive feedback. And, and that's what an arms race is. Um, the, the, the phrase arms race, of course, is borrowed from, from human arms races. And uh, it's, it's a pretty close one. It's, a, it's an analogy that I'm, I don't mind using at all. Mm -hmm. um, because it's, it, it's, each side has to balance the costs of investing in the arms race versus that's the opportunity cost versus the costs of the other things that it could be putting its energy and its time into. So the more energy you put into the arms race against predators, the less you've got left over to do things like make eggs and court mates and things like mm -hmm. that. And so each side in, in the arms race is, is, is fighting the other side, but it's also having to balance the costs of servicing the arms race against the other things that it ought to be doing in the animal's own economy. And both the predator and the prey are doing that. Both the parasite and the host are doing that. Well, it, 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 exactly. And, 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 you know, the, it, you present examples. And let, the first example, I, I don't want to jump in, because for me, each of the examples, well, many of them were, some of them I'd heard of, but many of them were quite surprising to me. And one of the aspects of the evolutionary arms race you talk about that I want to touch on at the beginning is moths and bats. Uh, you, yes. At which you you talk about, and maybe because if there's physics involved, it fascinated me. But why don't you? I was kind of amazed to hear about. So why don't you talk about that a little bit? Okay. Um, this is most of the work of a man called Kenneth Roder, American, um, and it's beautiful work. Uh, bats, as you know, use ultrasound to find their way around and to catch insects with. It's highly sophisticated. Um, the the detailed. Um, um, precision of it is such that you can think of it as almost like seeing. In mm -hmm. fact, I think it's pl plausible to say that the, the bats are probably putting together images, mental images, models in the, in the brain, just as we do when we mm -hmm. see, they do it with their, with their ears. Mm -hmm. And I've even gone so far as to speculate that they hear in color. And that's, that's my own private speculation. <laughs> okay. um, but anyway, um, they've become so good at it, partly because they don't want to bump into obstacles, 
because uh, that would be fatal yeah, sort true, of yeah. speed, speed they fly, but also because they're, they're running an arms race against prey, insects. And moths, noctuid moths, have ears which appear to be tuned only to hear bats. If they hear anything at all, it's a bat. Uh, and they take evasive action. They look like spitfires in World War II doing diving and mm. spiraling and, 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 and taking evasive action. And the bats have to um, compensate for this. And the, the, the speed with which the, um, the pulses of the bat come out, when they're just cruising along, they, they have a sort of steady pulse rate of mm. cries getting a steady echoes, which are updating their world picture as they go. When they're pursuing a moth or another insect, it speeds, it's like a machine gun. Um, it, it, it's, it's about, it can be as much as 50 times a second. So they're getting information about the, about the world, specifically about the moth, um, every 50th of a second. And that you can see would give you a highly precision mm -hmm. picture of where the, where the moth is. So the arms race has, has been going on for we don't know how long, of course, but moths have sophisticated ears, which are built to uh, to hear only ultrasound, and bats yeah. have the the ultrasound itself. There was another aspect that you mentioned that surprised me, which is that they are all not only have sophisticated ears, but they act like stealth planes in the sense that they're that they're they they. The bat can only find the moth if it's if it if the sound waves that uh, bounce off yeah. the moth and, yeah. and come back to and come back to the bat. But if they're absorbed by the moth and yes. don't come back, then the yeah. moth is invisible, like a stealth air aircraft is. That's sense. right. So yeah. something something about the texture of the of the hairs on the moth on the moth's body act like a a, a stealth a stealth plane. Yeah, it was sort of they were somehow tuned to absorb that re resonantly absorb yes. that radiation. That's what amazed yeah. me. I think that's why. And may, as I say, it's wonderful physics because it's exactly what's done in in concert halls to make sure that you don't have reverberations and you design the walls to absorb yes. the radiation yes. rather than have it bounce off. Yes. Well, my my color theory is that is that bats interpret different textures of 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 e echoes using color because they would have had ancestors that you would see in color. Then they went almost blind. So the brain still has those labels. After all, a color is simply a label in the brain. Sure, sure. To label a wavelength of light. Those, those labels would have been go going begging, doing nothing. Mm -hmm. Why not use them as a method of labeling different textures of echo coming back from different kinds of insects, for example. I mean, a leathery insect like a wasp will be different, have a different color in my hypothesis from a, <laughs> from a, a, a bumblebee, which is, which is furry. Well, let me, let, me, let me even encourage that more. I don't know whether it's true or not, but let me add fuel to your fire there. Um, because what a color of, of something really is, is, is uh, I am, something absorbs light and then re-emits um it absorbs not the entire spectrum but it, it absorbs preferentially in certain parts of the spectrum and reflects in other parts of the spectrum and the part that's get reflected so the wavelengths that get reflected produce color one could imagine that if you if you were sending sound waves of of, of a, a, a that that with which didn't have all the same frequency that an object different objects would would reflect certain frequencies more effectively than others, and that could yes. certainly be seen as color. Uh, yes. Okay. And, and by the way, the, the, um, some some bats use frequency modulated cries, um, so they 
um, instead of just doing a, a fixed pitch, they go, yeah. ooh, ooh. Yeah. It's a, it's, it's a, and they're using the difference in pitch of the, of the echo to yeah. say, okay, that the, the, it, since it's a downgoing one, mm -hmm. the first echo to return is the high pitch one. So mm -hmm. it, it enables, it increases the resolution. Exactly, um, because different frequencies actually travel yeah. at different, different speeds yes. in the air. And yeah. that's really important. Yeah. And there are other bats that use the Doppler shift. Um, and they, so when, when, the, when the insect is flying towards them, the echoes are Doppler shifted one way. And, and, and when the insect's flying away, Doppler shifted the other way. And the bats are sensitive to that. And the brain can process that in real time and <laughs> make use of it. It's wonderful. Well, as I've always said, bi biology is just really physics. So there you go. Of course, yes. <laughs> um, and oh, okay, before I leave the, this, so that's I'm glad we talked about that because that was fascinating. I didn't know about that. Um, but the but you also point out, and this is really important that 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 when you talk about flight being good, it's not good for individuals necessarily. It's as you say, it's good. As the point is, it's good for the the propagation of genes, and that may mean that flight makes certain individuals particularly good flyers for the purposes of eating and reproducing but it may kill them because in fact it's extremely dangerous for example to dive as gannets do or or peregrine falcons yes. do in, at, yes. and and you talk about peregrine falcons which i have a particular fondness for par partly because of this amazing what i don't know if you ever read the book the peregrine but i've i i, I know about it some somebody's recommended it to me and i haven't yet read it. it it is a remarkable book one of the more yes. uh, it's it's inspiring about someone who followed a peregrine around and it's a as a piece of nature writing it is it is fantastic i highly recommend it but jay yeah. baker i think but they go down at 200 miles per hour when they're diving and it can't be good for you to hit the water at 200 miles per hour Oh no! I mean, they're absolutely fatal. Or if you hit the, hit your target at the wrong angle, I should think. Yeah. And gannets too, you know. I mean, they they eventually lose their eyesight because of because of repeated um, striking against the against the water. And and, and uh, okay, so that's dangerous for injuries. But the other thing is, we think about birds and insects learning how to fly and maneuver beautifully. But the thing that uh, something else that amazed me that we've both been you've been to the Galapagos several times so have I not together unfortunately maybe we'll do it together sometime but um I was I I was uh, again maybe because of my ignorance was amazed that some birds will stay out flying out at sea for hundreds of miles and will fly for days or weeks and will actually can sleep while they're flying half their brain goes to sleep and and mm. and, and and this flying for um uh, I think you talk about swifts uh, 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 flying. Basically, they've lived their whole life in the air, right? Yeah, swifts are amazing. Um, it, I, I gather it's not actually true. I, I said in the book that, that they never land except to breed, uh -huh. except to lay eggs. Uh, but they, they, uh, I said they cannot take off. It's not quite true. They can take off from the ground, but it's very mm -hmm. difficult. So they, yeah. they, they're very unwise to land on the ground, and they very seldom do it. They they even mate on in the air. They even copulate in the air. Just sort of like uh, well, that's kind of like the the jet planes we have that get fueled and sent in the air. Yes, right. <laughs> yes, yes. The, the beginning of um, Doctor Strangelove. This, this this rather erotic scene. Of it. Yes, yeah, yes. yeah, exactly. Um, okay. <laughs> the next the next thing you talk about is migration, which of course um, is. Um, uh, um, useful uh, uh, for a variety of things, but uh, but 
is one of the more amazing aspects of the biological work. The fact that that birds can migrate and or other even other animals can migrate, but in some cases, more than 10,000 miles and find their way back home. And, and that's a mystery, yeah. I think, that's fascinated scientists of all types, including physicists, but biologists for a long time. The Arctic turn, you point out, I guess, goes from one pole to the other yeah. um, to, to so always it, have summer. It, it, Always has summer, yes, that's right. I mean, the, the point about migration, I suppose, is because of, of, of seasons, because the earth is, is tilted up and goes around the earth, around the sun. Um, and so you, you, the best place to be is, isn't the same at different times of the year. And many, many animals, not just birds, but birds especially are, are privileged to be able to migrate huge distances uh, because, of their, um, because they can fly. And how they find their way is of course fascinating. Um, and it, it, it's one thing to find your way when you're a regular migrant from one yeah. particular place to another. It's another, if you're a, another thing is if you're a homing pigeon, which can find their way when, they're, when a human picks them up and transports them in a random direction and release them from a random place. And so they not only have a compass, they have a map in some sense. Mm -hmm. uh, and um, that, that's a bit of a, a, bit of a mystery. What that's for in nature is probably that a migrating bird is quite likely to get blown off course. And so it has to, has to have a map. It has to, to know where it is as well as just what direction. Um, so it, in, in addition to a compass, it has, it has to know where it is. But, it, but and I want to get to that because you talk about some fascinating experiments that amaze me, but um, to learn about how, how, how birds, or, uh, birds or insects migrate. Uh, um, but... It, this question of, of sort of evolutionary economy does fascinate me about migration, because clearly, from an energetic point of view, it's incredibly cost, it's incredibly expensive to migrate. Yes. Um, and so the benefits have to outweigh that expense. I've often, when you talk about turns, having perpetual summer, by like going from the yeah. North Pole to the South Pole, I keep thinking, why wouldn't the turn just stop in the equator and just say, oh, I don't have to move? I, I agree <laughs> with you. I agree. No, the, uh, of, the, the benefits must out, outweigh the costs, but but I, I it is a mystery. I mean, there's tiny, little tiny hummingbirds, yeah. which you think would be. I mean, they're constantly sipping nectar, which is aviation fuel. Yeah. Um, and and yet they 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 migrate right across the Gulf of Mexico. Yeah. And and um, that's astonishing. It, it's astonishing, and yeah, obviously there's a there's there are good reasons for that, but but in order to be able to do it, as you point out, the bi biology has to you know, these things have to evolve systems that are amazing. And one, and yeah, I've heard this, and you mentioned the fact that maybe they, they are sensitive to the magnetic field of the earth, which I'd heard and could, can believe, but, but, but as you point out, that's just a compass, not a map uh, for the most part. And the, I, I, if there's one set of experiments that I want you to talk about, cause I, I was amazed. And that's these experiments in planetarium that these birds may have star maps, that just shocked the heck out of me to hear that. Yes, well, this is the work of Stephen Emlin at Cornell. Yeah. Um, uh, it's certainly true that they have star maps and uh, that they night flying, night migrating birds use the stars to navigate by. Mm -hmm. They do not have a genetically built in star map, mm -hmm. which would have been a possibility, mm -hmm. a rather far fetched one, but would yeah. have been a possibility. Steve Emlin's actual hypothesis is that they when they're young, when they're, they're learning, they observe the night sky and they note, they notice that there's a part of the night sky that does not rotate as the, as the clock does. Um, 
And in the Northern Hemisphere, that's pretty well marked by Uber as the North Star. In the Southern Hemisphere, it's more and more empty. But nevertheless, yeah. in the Southern Hemisphere, you can still see that there's a, there's a part of the sky that's not rotating. And so what they learn is to treat the part of the sky that does not rotate as due north or due south, as the case may be. And Emlyn showed this brilliantly in the planetarium. By he not only used the planetarium to, to, to show by blotting out bits of the sky that they use the stars, he then brought up how he got permission to do this from the planetarium, I don't know, but he, he brought up baby birds, young, young, young um, indigo buntings in the planetarium. And he manipulated the planetarium so that the, 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 the night sky of the planetarium rotated about Betelgeuse, about Orion's left shoulder. Uh -huh. And um, these birds, when they, when they grew up, treated Orion's left shoulder as though it was the North Star. He could tell what direction they were migrating and they didn't actually migrate. He kept them in a cage and looked at which side of the cage they fluttered at to try to get out. Mm -hmm. And that that was and that gave him the, the clue as to what direction, but but they they were they fluttered trying to get out of the cage in the direction that would have been the southerly direction they wanted if the if the Orion's left shoulder was the north star. Yeah, no, it's it, uh, it, it that the fact that it's a wonderful experiment to do because that actually I mean that's what science is about is speculating, but then you can actually well in a planetarium is able to test it. And I, I again for just to be clear for people because some people may not realize why it is that the north the things don't move around the north star and that is because the earth is 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 rotating and and therefore that's why the that's why the sky moves around of course as we now know it's not that the earth is the center of the universe and the universe doesn't rotate around the earth it's that motion of the earth around and there and and on the axis of the earth clearly is that if you look up along the axis of the rotation that's where where things won't won't go around but i um just just for people who who may not recognize that fact but the, by the way this was one case where there were many cases where the illustrations in the book were quite useful you described this funnel that was used to test the motion of birds yes. and 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 you described it on one page and i kept trying to picture it i couldn't picture it and then i turned the page and i thought oh there it is and there was yeah, an illustration yeah. of it that explained it yeah. beautifully for me yeah. so. it's, it's called the emlyn funnel and yeah. and it's a, it's a cage with a, a a conical funnel at the bottom and there's an ink pad and and there's white paper all around the conical funnel and the birds the poor birds get their feet all inky and they try to <laughs> struggling up on the side they want to migrate for and they leave their little inky footmarks yeah. all over the one side of the paper but not the other it's again a simple and lovely experiment i was very ingenious i was very impressed yeah. um uh, before we leave they, they it's also argued of course and this is maybe a little i don't want to go into this too much here because it may take too much time but the key point about knowing where you are on earth is not just which direction north is but but sort of what time of day it is so you know what where where are you on Earth, and and that for that requires both a clock and and an ability to look at, at sort of angles of of stars on the horizon to know what, you know what, what your latitude is as well as your longitude, and yes, and you yeah and use a sextant for that, and you argue which which looks at that angle and and you argue that or at least it's argued that birds can do that because again they're looking at where they can actually kind of observe the motion of the sun and predict where it will be at noon and things that's like right that. i mean this this is one theory it's not it's not necessarily accepted but what one 
standard of theories is that the birds are doing something like using a sextant uh, and um, using the um, height of the sun, um, if, if, if they know what time it is locally, then, then the height of the sun is, is meaningful. They have to know what time it is locally. And so they need a very accurate clock. They need a chronometer. And um, in order to navigate very accurately, sailors, as you know, needed a highly accurate chronometer. That was the Harrison chronometer was invented for, 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 that, for that purpose. I suppose birds don't need that accuracy. I mean, a ship needs to be accurate because it doesn't want to bump into rocks. Yeah. But a bird can be relatively inaccurate, I suppose. A homing pigeon only has to get within a sort of radius of home where it starts to recognize familiar landmarks, um, I suppose, church spires and things like yeah. that, because they do use landmarks. I mean, many migrating birds use landmarks in a big way, like flying along coastlines, along river valleys, sure. that sort of thing. There's plenty of geographic features like that they can use. I remember I used to fly a lot with my uncle who had a plane and also one of the worst senses of directions of anyone I've ever met. And <laughs> yes. Many times we got lost and the only way to get back was to was to use la local landmarks and follow a road or or, yes. or something yeah, like that. Yeah. The uh, uh, yeah, it's it's um, OK. Well, um, the um, the the next thing you talk about is you you say why. Um, why is it a good thing to lose your wings? I, I, I would phrase it as why, when is the absence of wing, wings a good thing? The point you point out is that some birds have, some, some animals have had wings and then, and then lost them. And, and, and why, why not have wings? And, and argue it's again, sort of evolutionary economics. So maybe you want to talk about how that could happen. Yes, well, as you say, there are quite a lot of, of birds, especially on islands that have lost their wings. And obviously they come from ancestors that did have wings and their ancestors must have arrived on the island in flight. Mm -hmm. uh, things like um, flightless cormorants of Galapagos, things like the dodo of Mauritius. Um, many, many islands all over the world have flightless versions of uh, more familiar flying birds. And the ratites like ostriches and emus, they must very, very long time ago have descended from flying birds that probably arrived on, on islands. Um, queen ants actually bite their wings off, having used them yeah. for their only only one purpose. Which I is, didn't know which that is, until I... Yes, yeah. Um, so yes, it, it, it's an economic calculation, probably mostly. Wings are costly to make and they're costly to run because they need strong flight muscles in order to, to use them. Um, and in the case of queen ants, it's probably also that in case of ants generally, who, who, who lack, work, worker ants lack wings, although both their parents have wings, um, because it's inconvenient to have wings underground, they get in the way. And, and termites are the same. Termites are unrelated, independently evolved social insects, and they yeah. too have winged reproductives, winged queens and males, who then lose their wings, and then the workers have, have no wings. So it is an economic calculation, and um, there are plenty of reasons to get rid of your wings once you've had them and plenty of reasons not to develop wings in the first place. Well, you, yeah. And, and, but I have to say one of the things that about, the, about that discussion, once again, that I, caught me and I want to, I want to use it as an example to talk about these things. I never heard about terror birds and elephant birds. It's, I was shocked. Tell me about, talk about terror <laughs> birds because they're well, terrible. They're terrifying. They're terrifying. <laughs> 
Um, the, these are these are birds. They're not related to ostriches, etc. They're entirely different different family of birds, and they terrorized well South America until quite recently, until about two million years ago. And they were gigantic, and they were carnivores. They were vor voracious hunters. Unlike ostriches, which have little thin necks and little little heads, they had huge necks and huge great jaws, gigantic jaws. Um, they probably swallowed their prey whole. Uh, uh, and um, yeah, they would not be want not want to meet one. Yeah, I think you said yeah, they could swallow a capybara or something like that. Well, I don't. Nobody knows whether they yeah. could. Uh, this no, but they were like, but, but they were they were two at least two meters tall or something like that or three meters more, more than that. Three meters more like that. Um, and the a, same, yeah, ele elephant birds were as big. The elephant bird of Madagascar, um, and and indeed moas of New Zealand, um, they were related to ostriches. Um, and um, they went extinct in both cases when humans arrived. Um, um, the Maoris drove the moas extinct, which is a terrible yeah. tragedy. And when humans arrived in Madagascar, actually from, from, the, from the east rather than from, from Africa, funnily enough, mm -hmm. uh, and they drove the elephant birds extinct. It's possible that the legend of the rock in Sinbad the Sailor comes from elephant birds. Although That's what I like. The, the legendary rock could fly up and pick up elephants and, Elephant birds certainly could not fly. They, they, they were like gigantic ostriches. And, and didn't they say something about being from Madagascar in the, in the, in the I, I seem- Yes, the, I, think, I think there was, a, I think Marco Polo talked about the, about the rock as being, as coming from Madagascar, yes. So these, again, elephant birds, uh, yeah. large, large birds in Madagascar. They, I, the, the reason I think it's terrible, I think I've been at a zoo once with ostriches who come yes. up to you and they're kind of terrifying. They they come up to right, right, and and they yeah. and and the idea of one that actually is also carnivorous. It it kind of reminds me of of kangaroos. Where I spent a lot of time in Australia, and and you walk around in a bunch of kangaroos, and they stand and look at you, and, yeah. and you think to myself, you're surrounded by them. And you think, my goodness, it's good that they're not carnivorous because it well, was, I mean, there there were carnivorous kangaroos in, in Australia. Oh, really? They're, they're they're extinct, but 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 there were. I mean, as you know, a huge proportion of the Australian megafauna went extinct. Yeah, Again, sure. probably driven extinct by the arrival of, of humans. Yeah. Um, and that included large carnivorous kangaroos, which must have been quite terrifying. Yeah, I'm just, I guess I should, we'll talk about how sad it is that are extinctions, but I, yeah. I guess having been surrounded by by kangaroos on numerous occasions, I'm not kind of happy the carnivorous ones went extinct. Um, yes. At least, maybe not for them, but it was good for me. Um, uh, you also point out that, you know, it, it, that, that, you know, given this economic fight between having wings or the uh, and not having wings, that uh, uh, bats are the only mammals that fly, um, and um, and and sort of speculate on why that is, but also point out something to me. I didn't realize you said one fifth of all mammals are bats. They're very very numerous. Yes, that's right. It, um, it, that's terrifying in a sense, mo mostly yes. now because of COVID, because COVID comes yeah, from yes from, yes apparently comes yeah. from bats. Um, when we say only the bats are the only mammals that fly, I mean, quite a lot of mammals glide and um, mm. they may have been a stepping stone on the direct, on the way on, to flying. On the, on the way to we'll flight. Talk, yeah, we'll talk yeah. About, about gliding in a bit because I think it's, well, it's fascinating in its own right. It's also from an evolutionary perspective for those people yes. who wonder, you know, the, the same question, why, how, do, how, do, how do we have eyes and all those standard, you know, anti-evolutionary arguments. And uh, how can they fly? How could the half a wing work? And it's, we'll get yes. to there. But first, we're going to get to something which I hit, hit home for me, which is sort of small as beautiful. 
your chapter on, on how flying is easier if you're smaller. And I know that you weren't, I, I like to think, and I don't even know if you ever read my book, Fear of Physics, which begins with the joke of the cow as a sphere. Um, yes, of course. Yeah. yeah, and, yeah. and, 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 uh, and, um, and, I, and in that in the book that book where I joked about it, I also said seriously, let's take that notion of a cow as a sphere a little more seriously and try and do some biology. And I was able to show you could do some interesting biology. But the, but this chapter and 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 your book actually takes that further. It really shows specifically how very simple scaling arguments uh, really govern certainly the biology of flying. And so maybe you could walk us through that. Yes. Yes. Okay. Um... Any any object, and we use cubes in the book, but it could be any, anything you like. If you scale it up, the uh, volume and the weight goes up as the cube of the of the linear dimension, and the surface area goes up as the square of the linear dimension, which means that the smaller an object is, the larger its surface area compared to its weight. And so a very, very small animal like the so-called fairy fly, Tinkerbella. Mm -hmm. Well, actually, I was going to get to Tinkerbella, but yeah, yeah okay. Yeah. Um, it, it, it's so small that it hardly needs bother to fly. I mean, it just kind of floats around. We have a picture of one flying through the Ivor Needle. Yeah. Um, and pollen grains, uh, are similarly, um, they're, they're tiny, so that their surface area is large. And so you just puff them into the air and they just float about in the breeze. That, and that's, by the way, a perfect example of why of, of sort of the phys thinking like a physicist. So I'm always happy when you do that, Richard. Um, the, uh, uh, because you don't have to worry about the detailed shape of a Tinkerbella or a bird or whatever. Yeah. And you might as well just think well of it be as a sphere. sphere. It might as well yes. be a sphere and you get that argument yes. working. But, yes. um, um, and so the point is it is easier for, because flying involves surface area, uh, it's uh, sort of, it, which in some sense allows your resistance to, to falling and 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 ability to 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 pump against the air air resistance, um, it it is much easier for small objects to fly as well as various other things, including also to hop and many other things we we can talk about and why why large animals need much thicker limbs and and you why you and the example you use which is a beautiful one is the little fairies that 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 um, so confused. Uh, uh, yeah yeah because yeah. Uh, because you know. It, it, and it's a big it's one of the mistakes in movies I love to point out is the 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 80 foot man or whoever would not look like an 80 foot man because no, they, no, wouldn't, right. they wouldn't be able to walk with that. That's but right. I think but I I want to I want to point out what I think is an error in your book, though. OK, okay. Uh, and I think it's because you got your theology wrong. OK, right. You have a beautiful picture of Da Vinci's Annunciation uh, with the angel Gabriel and, and have the wings. Um, and Janet drew the wings uh, as large as they would have to be, because you point out that if human had wings, they'd have to be much, much larger because a human is l much larger than the bird and therefore needs much more surface area to carry that kind yeah. of weight. Yeah. But I think you got it wrong because you're making the assumption that angels are made of the same stuff as humans. Clearly, okay. clearly okay. angels are yeah. not. We're going to start talking <laughs> theology, Lawrence. Yeah. We're lost. No, no. But, well, I figure if you're going to use a theological example, I thought yeah, you'd yeah, yeah, at least yeah, get... Yeah. Anyway, um, okay, but you do talk about the largest flying animals and the smallest flying animals, which is, um, so the, um, you know, one of the reasons I'm not a biologist is I can never do these names. And um, the largest flying animal is a Quesdelcoatlus, or how do you pronounce um, well, it? Well, 
quite so coatless, it, it may not be the largest, and a, a new fossil has been found, which may be even larger, but this oh. was horrendously large. Yana oh. um, uh, drew it eye to eye with a giraffe. And you, yeah. you know, imagine a flying giraffe. Um, so it must have glided, I suppose. I mean, uh, uh, I, I would imagine that it probably took off from cliffs and, and glided great distances. You, have you seen that? By the, 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 the way, I, there's, there are some beautiful images of it in this uh, new series with David Attenborough on prehistoric, on dinosaurs. And, and there's, a whole seg se there's a whole sequence with these guys walking on their elbows and-, and, and, and I haven't seen that actually, no, I'd like to see that. Yeah, it's yeah. really, I often, I mean, I have to say, frankly, as a skeptical, how they knew, much of what they say there is fascinating, but how they actually uh, knew, how you can actually know it. I but, don't think you, I don't think you really But do. the images are beautiful. You, yeah, you, you yeah, and I, I, I want to see that, yeah. Um, there's, and, a, there's a nice, sorry, there's a, there's a, an, a an, there was an inventor in California called Paul McCready, who made a half-size model of Quetzalcoatlus, which flew. Um, it had an onboard computer, which, because it needed that, that to, sure? to control its flight surfaces. Um, oh. I, anyway, that, that's... Uh, well, at least it's not, okay, well, it, it, and you do say, I don't know why, I was going to ask you, uh, you say it pushed to the ultimate limits, which flying by muscles is possible. Um, why do you say that? I mean, are you saying you could not be bigger with muscles or? or... Well, I, I could be enlightened on that. I mean, I, I, I think probably flapping must be more difficult than propelling yourself along by making great wind with a, with a um, propeller. Yeah, um, yeah. Because um, I, 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 I suppose, I, I can't imagine quite how you would use muscle power to generate a wind thrusting the aircraft forward. Mm -hmm. um, whereas the internal combustion engine or jet engine can do that. Um, I, I'm, it's an interesting question. I, I, I ask it because I suspect some physicists at least must have done, must be in analyzing exactly that question. Given the rate of, of sort of burning oxygen resp respiration and energy generation, and muscle utility, there must be some physical limit on how much thrust you can provide in a wing. And I, 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 I don't know. I, I suppose so, yes, I think so. Um, Leonardo da Vinci designed the sort of helicopter, mm -hmm. which was actually an Archimedes screw. Yeah. And he had four men running around and around and yeah. around with a capstan. <laughs> yeah, I think there's a picture oh, of it in, in, in the book. Yeah, I there think. is, yeah. yeah, there is, yeah. yes, yes. Yeah, it didn't work. He he was yeah he he was a man who dreamed of flying a lot, and some of his machines yes. didn't work, but some of them at least would have glided if not flown. Yes, he could have could have glided, but but he he designed flapping machines as well, ornithopters, and, yeah. and they would never have worked. Yeah, they wouldn't have worked for the same for the reasons they point out. It's which again, yeah. once again, to repeat, is just physics. But anyway, yeah. um, the but and you do mention. Let's mention it again. It's worth Tinker Tinkerbell Eye. That's a that's an animal. That's a name I could at least remember. And, yes. Um, yes. And, and in fact, in fact, isn't it uh, uh, the full name also have um, the Nana? Yeah, Tinkerbell and Nana. Yeah. Um, in in Peter Pan, um, the children um, they had this fairy called Tinkerbell, but they also had a a nanny, uh, mm -hmm. a, a nursemaid, which was a dog, an old English sheepdog called uh, called Nana. Yeah, yeah, it's wonderful. And and it, there is a, and and it literally is small enough to fly through a needle, right? It's a... Oh, easily. Yes, I mean tiny compared to the eye of a needle. It's amazing. It is amazing that it would need to bother to fly, as you pointed out. That's well, think small. of all the machinery inside that tiny body. Think of all the, the muscles and the nerves and, and the brain and 
Yeah, it's like a nanorobot. It really is. It's, yes. um, it is amazing. But then one goes to larger animals where, where the challenge is indeed surface area, once again, and that because, yes. because the ratio of, you know, of, of, of surface area to mass goes down for larger animals, you need to increase your surface area. And that lead, you know, it's tempting to say that that sort of challenge is kind of what may, what led certain animals to at least, if not have wings, at least know how to glide. And so you talk about um, uh, uh, gliding and flying squirrels and something called um, the Kologo, which which glides along as well. Could you talk about that? Yes, yes. That That's sometimes called the flying lemur. It's not actually a lemur. It's sort of its, its own thing out on a limb. Um, it's It's got a bigger gliding surface, um, flight surface than flying squirrels. Flying squirrels stretch a membrane from the uh, hand to the foot uh, on both sides. Yeah. And they glide from a, a high tree, uh, maybe a couple of hundred yards, perhaps the most, um, to a lower tree. The Cologo also has that, but it also includes the tail in, the, in this. So it's like a great living parachute. And that can glide a bit further. Fascinatingly, um, there's a marsupial in Australia and New Guinea, which also does the same trick. And it, that looks exactly like a flying squirrel. You can hardly tell the difference, but, but one's a marsupial and one's a, oh, actually two are rodents because the rodents have evolved the same trick twice independently. And then we have flying frogs and flying snakes and flying lizards and things which also do, do the same trick but in a different ways. I mean, the flying lizard does it by sticking its ribs out and having a membrane stretched between the ribs, whereas these mammals do it by stretching it between the front limbs and the, and the hind limbs. And yeah, you, I love the pictures where there's sort of a hand and then stretched down to, down, down to the leg is a, is a stretch. Y yes, membrane. yes, yes. Yeah. There's also flying fish. And, I, and I, I must, I have to ask you, I mean, I was so touched when I learned that your father um, told you a, a, this poem. I thought, wow, weren't you lucky? Um, oh, no. yes. Do you remember? Can you? I, I, yeah. I don't know. We, okay. We yes. Uh, um, it, it it it's it's not exactly a poem. It's just a, a, a great narrative. Yeah, yeah. Every every word beginning with F. Yes. Um, full forty furlongs from Pharaoh's farthest frosty foreshore flew fifty five flying fish fleeing fearfully for freedom from fifty five ferocious feathered fowls forty feet further flop. 40 feet further flop. And then you added another sentence to it, which yeah, I thought was great. Well, well uh, one of the main birds that take flying fish are actually frigate birds, which you and I have both seen in, in, mm -hmm. in Galapagos. And frigate birds are um, kleptoparasites. They, they're pirates. They pirate, they, they steal fish from other birds. And I suppose a flying fish would look pretty much like a, a bird that's got some prey. So anyway, frigate birds are good at catching flying fish. Mm -hmm. So I added just one line to my father's rhyme, which was, uh, forgot felonious frigates, father. Yeah. <laughs> oh, well, that was great. I'm glad I, I knew you'd remember it. I know you remember poetry. I, I, I just I thought I missed was... out some of it. I think no, it no, but it's one. It was just a, it's just uh, wow. It was just it really made my day to think your father yeah. did that for you. Yeah. Now, the next thing, though, the next thing you do talk about is is, in fact, flight itself, which is non-trivial as we physicists would like to say it's it's not so easy there are simple arguments but as always simple arguments have to be refined and 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 so we should it would I, we have to spend a few minutes 
on the physics of flying, um, which you point out has two pieces, a Newtonian piece and a piece we, that we would call a Bernoulli piece. So why don't, why, I'll, I'll turn the floor over to you to explain that. Well, um, it's a bit unfair of you because I actually, I actually consulted you about this, Lawrence. <laughs> um, um, when, when a plane flies, it could, it could have wings which are just flat boards. Mm -hmm. And by flying very fast through the air, propelling itself forward through, through the air, if the wings are slightly tilted upwards, um, then um, you get the same effect if you stick your hand out of a car window and, and you tilt your hand slightly upwards, you feel it being pushed upwards. So that, that's the Newtonian principle, which seems to be the most important one. That's the principle. Let me say one thing that you didn't say there, and, and maybe it's my fault for not thinking of it at the time when we talked about it, but it's basically the principle that causes um, boats to, to, sailboats to work, right? I mean, it's just, it's just putting a sail in the right direction and, and the wind will, will go against it and the resistance will take you in the direction you want to go. In this case, it's up if you tilt the wing up. Anyway. Yes, I thought sailing boats was a bit more complicated in that they're it's, also it's, it's like the, the principle of squeezing an orange pip, isn't it? Mm -hmm. You're being squeezed between the wind and the sea. Yeah. Um, and um, so I never really quite understood it, but well, that's, how, that's why sailing boats don't always go in with the wind. I mean, they, they, yeah, you can do it in both directions. In fact, that's yeah. a Bernoulli aspect. But 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 the bottom line is you're absolutely right. I mean, the simple one is if you put if you put your hand out the window, it just the air just pushes yes. you up. So yeah. that's the easy part. Well, the, the Bernoulli part I find more difficult, but it's to do with yeah. the curvature of the wing. Yeah, you would have to correct me if, if I get this wrong. Uh, and um, when the, the, the when the wind generated by the forward thrust is is flying when the wind is passing rapidly over the top side of the wing and the bottom side of the wing. If the curvature of the top side is greater than the curvature of the bottom, or bottom side, um, for reasons I don't fully understand, that, that tends to kind of suck the wing up upwards. Yeah, um, no, it's, it's a fascinating from You do a real, I thought in the book, you did a, a fine job of, of, uh, of explaining the, the, the fact that, that, you know, the pressure is so, we don't think of um well we later on talk about hot air balloons float we tend to think of them floating but the real point is that the air is heavier and pushes down below them and lifts them up and 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 so it's pressure that's doing all all the work here and the bottom line is that when a when, that that what mr bernoulli showed is that is that when when a fluid or and the fluid can be air is moving fast the pressure that it exerts on an object is is smaller, and that's just simply because pressure, as Mr. Maxwell um, first showed, is just just comes from air molecules bouncing off an object, and the more of them, and the faster they're hitting the object, the greater the pressure. And as it's moving fast, you find basically once when you're moving very fast through the air, basically fewer of those molecules are hitting per unit area. Per second, because they're mostly yes. speeding past, and that yes, means uh, that that means what that really means is that it's not so much that the that that's sucking as the fact that uh, underneath more molecules are hitting and it's pushing you up. The pressure is yeah. greater below and yes. less above. Yes, yeah, but it is as you point out rightly. It's it it is, um, and it made me think about some of this. It, the question is why does the air have to move faster above than below? Why does it have to catch up? You know, you got yeah. two molecules, one going below and one going above. Why does the one on the uh, above have to be, have to 
have to travel faster to some, somehow catch up with the one below. And I started to think about that based on your book. And I think the, the, the answer is really that if it didn't, there'd be kind of a vacuum, right? If the, if the air, if the air was, was, was not catching up above and below, there'd be less air here. And that would basically, that would, and I think that in some sense that causes that pressure differential to push in that direction. And one of the reasons you get stalling, which you talk about is that if you can, if it can't keep up, there's kind of like a little vacuum in the back part of the wing and that drags air from underneath up in circles. And that produces turbulence, which, which you point out yes. is a stalling. Yeah. If you, if you have yeah. a wing that's too, and the birds, if you have a wing that's, if you're, if you're fl- trying to fly too high, you stall for that very reason that the air can't keep up on top and, and you don't get that pressure differential. Some some birds use stalling as a, as a device for when they're actually landing, but I think it's a fallacy uh, which people used to say that um, when two molecules hit the front of the come to the front of the wing, um, they have to end at, at, at the back, and the one on the top has to go faster in order to catch up. That that I think is wrong. Absolutely uh, no, that one made me think. Yeah, it was a great yes. statement because I yes. I kind of used to say that, and then yes. I thought, well, he's right, you know. And then I was thinking about what would cause it to be faster and. But 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 this and so so I think that what was really what I really particularly liked about that explanation is you didn't take the easy route you didn't just say that you say but it, it, it's not quite that and 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 there's some there's some yeah. and and when it doesn't work you get stalling which is an interesting thing and I didn't realize that you know outside my my house here I we have herons great herons and I like to watch them land and they and 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 you can apparently see from the fluttering of their wings uh, yes herons. You can see the, the the feathers sort of push up because Pull, of the pulling upwards. Yes, that's and, right. And, yes, and and they use that to basically stall and land at the yeah, end of their land. Yeah. Yes. Yes. The um, but um. To, uh, you talk about uh, the other bird you talk about is the uh, well you talk about given that physics how one has to um how evolution had to 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 uh to um uh evolve things for instance i i wasn't aware of the of the fact that feathers um are designed very similarly to the way jet aircraft have 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 uh these these uh devices on them to reduce stalling did you, uh oh yes um i i've never quite understood that but but people say that the when you when you look at the the end feathers on on the wing of something like a vulture or an eagle they spread out like a sort of separate fingers, they're actually not fingers at all, they're, they're, they're feathers. And that is said to be similar to the anti-stalling devices of aircraft, which are called slats, um, which when you when, when a plane comes into land, you see the, the, the wing kind of opens up into, into lots of different bits of pseudo little extra wings. <laughs> those, are, those are the slats, which are um, designed to remove turbulence, to guide the air um, which, More efficiently uh, over the top. Yeah, yeah, yes, um, and, and no doubt it's very bad for flying fast, but it's just exactly what you want when you're flying slow and in danger of stalling. Well, and 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 um, to jump ahead, so we you, the next chapter really goes, I would say, from the physics of flying to the biology of flying, which is how how birds fly, which is obviously much more complicated than aircraft because they have wings and they're doing lots of things with their wings. Um, because they're flapping and 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 that yes. whole process is is fascinating it uses the same physics but in a much more complicated way 
Well, the, the, the wings are being used both as, as wings to provide lift, like an aircraft, airplane wings, but also to provide forward thrust, which is the, the role of the propeller or the jets in a plane. And so doing the same thing, performing both functions at once, means they have to be performing a kind of complicated figure of eight movement, pushing the bird forward, which it needs to do to get the lift, and also pushing downward, um, which is the kind of helicopter principle for obtaining lift, which is a different principle from the plane. A, pl a plane gets its lift by going fast forward and using the Newtonian Bernoulli mm -hmm. principle, whereas a helicopter just simply thrusts the air downwards. Um, and um, birds do that as well. So it's a, it's a complicated mixture of helicopter plus plane where the, where the wings are doing both the job of the propeller and, and the plane wings. And, and have to, um, and also have to make sure when they do their figure eight, obviously if they kept the same configuration, then whatever pushed them forward would pull them back on the back yes, on the right. return trip. So, they, so they, they, have... they, they change their configuration, that's right. Um, so they're pulled in, pushed out again, changing the angle. It, it's a very sophisticated thing. And some of them, hummingbirds can, hover like a helicopter and go backwards. Uh, and so can some insects, hoverflies, dragonflies can-, can Yeah, you perform. talk about hummingbirds, that I, I, the, this, this ability to hover, which is with, 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 uh, with this incredible speed of, 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 uh, of uh, vibration of the wings- Yes. Which is required, um, and, and the shape of the wings in order to do that, it's just, it's just remarkable. And I'm, you know, yes. I love humming and we have hummingbirds and I just love to watch yeah. them. It yeah. did, it did occur to me that in some, that, you know, I guess I could get a feeling for it. I'm always, I'm not a great swimmer. I'm, I'm a reasonable swimmer, but I'm not very fast. And, and this, and, and it's kind of a very similar kind of technique that the good swimmers learn how to do is how to move their arms to propel them, but move it back so as not to yes. slow them down. Yes, that's right. Yes, they do. But but swimmers don't have to worry about lift. I mean, the, the buoyancy uh, keep, keeps you up. Uh, yeah, exactly. Really. Although although I think there is some of that to keep you up. Yes. I mean, when yeah. you're when you're so it's a because uh, I want to talk later about the fact that buoyancy is buoyancy, whether it's in air or water, and and we'll we'll get to that. But you talk about the albatross, which is which which is sort of the I think you say that just sort of the, the 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 best use of economy of of energy. In flying, so talk about the albatross a little bit. The poor albatross. Yes, I, well, they, they fly for prodigious distances, low over the water, over the over the sea, um, right the way around the world in the southern hemisphere, um, and they seem to be using some kind of technique whereby they turn into the wind and use the wind pushing up on uh, on the wings to climb, and then they turn and fly with the wind sinking downwind and then turn back into the wind again and climb and then turn round and face with the wind. So that alternately climbing against the wind and, go and going forwards with the wind. And they're also, I think, using uh, the updrafts caused by the waves. Um, that's it's not, not like thermals, but it's something like um, using up, gets updrafts. Air pushed up because of the wig waves. Yes. Yeah. No, I was fascinated to learn that. And they and they only they basically go around the world and always in this direction of the prevailing winds or against the is it with the direction of the prevailing winds or against I think the it is yes I, th I think it is yes so yes. so so they're so they're primarily gliding and then every now and then they turn against the prevailing wind or go up yes and then use yes. the wind to bring them along it seems That's reasonable right. to use the wind yes. to be in the direction of the wind it gives you yes. an extra power just like we'll talk about later shooting 
satellites up, you want to be in part of the Earth going in the fastest. You want to go be yes. using yeah. the rotation of the Earth to, to help you. You also point out be, because of that, because they spend they're so adapted that they're using the using the wind to lift up and then glide. That they that they that they um, in order to get up, they actually have to. It's not so easy for them to get up off the ground, and they have to have runways. Yes. And, and 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 you know what? I don't remember them. You, they're in the Galapagos. You saw them, and I don't oh. remember them. Oh yes. Um. On I forget which island it is. Did, did you see them at all? On, on I forget which island. Yeah. 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 Um. And they they could actually see the the the, the runways that are worn out with worn down with them. I've oh. seen them in New Zealand as as well. I, um, see, I don't remember that. Now, when next time we go, I have to I have to yeah. look at that. You also yeah. talk about that's other birds that have that are also similarly adept at using either thermals or gliding. Um. That that they it's not so easy for them to take off, and I thought it was particularly interesting that that in a book that you talked about walking on water. Did I? Oh yes, I remember. There's a uh, um, there's an American grebe that that does a lovely courtship dance, running, 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 running across the surface of the water, keeping. Yes, very very nice. Yeah. Yeah, you know. So it's isn't it a bird called the Jesus bird or something like that? You mentioned it. it uh, the it's, Jesus Christ lizard is the is one that, no, well, that's, no, but I there's something where you is there some bird where the word or maybe where I thought Jesus was in there for a bird that tends to walk on water, but I I'll have to look well, in the book. I I think I I know that of the Jesus Christ lizard, which which I've seen skittering across across the oh the, oh maybe it's the Jesus Christ lizard. Okay, that's it. Yeah. yeah. Okay, skipping across the water. Yeah. Um, I um, I'm going to skip over some things because I I want to I want to continue. There's things I want to get to, but. The most beautiful, um, the most beautiful flying that you've ever seen is called what's it called a mum murmuration, of of, of murmuration murmuration yeah murmuration. There's an R in there. Yeah, it's these um, amazing things to see where it looks like all these individual birds are forming these starlings. Yes, starlings. they're starlings. Um, um, uh, uh, I've seen them in in near Oxford, and, and I've seen if them. you just just Google uh, Google starling murmuration. They are spectacular. I mean, they're these unbelievable. Are I've seen them. Ten thousand birds, um, all wheeling and turning together in synchrony, and what's remarkable is that the edge of this gigantic flock is is a cut, cut and dried edge. It doesn't tail off. It it looks as though they know they're on the edge, and 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 and, um, and, the, and the pattern just changes as if as yes. if it's by miracle. It it looks if you wanted to. And what this is one of the examples that I, I love because it's a beautiful example of flying, but also it's a beautiful example of our desire to imagine sort of design when there doesn't have to be. It looks like something had to design these large patterns and somehow the birds had to know that they're going to be in a pattern. And you yes. talk about this in the book, but I, as, a, as a physicist, I, I, I was fascinated because people wondered how, how is it possible that all these birds can be doing these detailed things and not hitting each other and know the pattern. And it turns out that in physics, we call a nearest neighbor interaction, almost the, the miracle of solids and the behavior of most materials, which can be seemingly miraculous, is just that particles interact with other part, their nearest neighbors in different ways. And it was speculated that if each bird just basically looks at their neighbor and has a rule, which, which you could explore um, numerically, you could produce such a pattern. And you talk about the fact that applying that, in fact, you, that's been done. So why do you mention? Yes, it it, it has. Um, it's tempting to think there must be a conductor, a, a choreographer, sort of lead bird. It's, yeah. it's not like that. As you say, it's done by bottom-up rules. And so each bird has its own little local rules. And this has been shown by computer simulation, wonderful example of computer simulation, 
um, started by a programmer called Craig Reynolds and other people have done the same thing. What you do is you program the behavior of one bird. You never program the behavior of a flock. You program the behavior of one bird with, with rules for what, how, what to do with its neighbors. And then you release clones of that one bird into the computer. You, you make a thousand copies of this one bird that you've, that you've simulated. And then what you, what, observe, what you observe is an emergent property, an emergent flock, an emergent murmuration. The, the, the birds in the computer, on the computer screen behave just like starlings in a, in a murmuration. It's a beautiful it, example of bottom-up uh, design. Which, which, by the way, it has to be, right? I mean, that's the point. It's, this is one of these wonderful experiments you could say, if it didn't work this way, then, hey, there's evidence for design. Because if you're a bird, the only thing you can do, you can't be aware of the whole, there's no physical way to be aware of the whole, of the whole yeah. pattern. And so the only possibility is that you know what your nearest or neighbors are doing. And so that hypothesis um, allows you to can be tested, and it indeed works. And it, it's, it's beautifully. And it's a wonderful model for embryology as well, because when we we know that embryology is directed by DNA, but but what actually happens in embryology is that each individual cell interacts with other neighboring cells, just like the starlings interacting yeah. with each other. You program the the, the, the DNA programs the behavior of a cell. Yeah. different kinds of cells but, and then the cells interact with each other and it's a bottom-up thing there's no direction from above there's no there's no conductor of the orchestra it's all done by individual cells behaving in a particular way that programmed relative to their neighbors in in, in the body that's which, how embryology works sure which again which it has to be if you make the assumption that 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 things work by simple laws of chemistry biology and physics and and you know because that's the only way it could work well, that, that's it, not how building that's not that's not how human building no i know i was going to say I'm that's the only way yeah. that's the only way it could work if there isn't external design and that's yes, quite, and so yeah. it's another example to me when you when you try and think of people the illusion of design which you talk about in the book and we've talked about in many cases many books and we've had these discussions and as a physicist there's many illusions of design but but it's an example of the fact that if if there isn't design, then this had to be the case, and you can test it, test yeah. it, and 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 similarly that that the other there's another bit of physics which I think is what you mentioned in terms of flight, which is the V pattern, which is you see yes. in, in in geese and so many other things. It's just again the same reason bicyclists do. It, it's yes. they're exploiting energetics. Yes, they're, quite. they're using the slipstream of the bird in front of them in order to use less energy yes. to fly. Yeah. Um, the the I want to get to buoyancy because I want to talk about balloons in, for a minute or two. You talk about balloons and you give a great example of someone who I think should have won the Darwin Award. Um, uh, uh, I, right. Don't you think it was a yeah. perfect example of someone who's what yeah. is it? De Rosier is was his name. Uh, De Rosier. Who, yeah, he had. Yeah. Go on. Well, yes. you tell what he did, because I was well, amazed I, that he I, would be that I think crazy. You're, you're thinking of the one who had a, a, a hot, a hot bra brazier underneath a hydrogen balloon. So, yeah, so, so, yeah. So, a hot air balloon of, underneath a hydrogen uh, balloon. Asking for trouble. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> it was a Darwin Award early example of it. But, yeah. but, but you, I want to take, uh, I want to sort of pick a, a, a nitpick here a little bit. 
because yeah. you make the point and i thought i had a gotcha but at the end of the chapter you refer to it you say no animals really use you know our hot air balloons use the you know we've designed them but but immediately it occurred to me fish our example because you throughout the book you point out that you know air is a fluid water is fluid and you talk about the similarities of streamlining and and it's just a matter of buoyancy hot air balloons is just a matter of buoyancy you you yeah. find your you find your density to be the right place compared to the density of air yes. and and really and and really that's fish bladders are exactly hot air balloons well quite sense. i mean and and the telios fish are particularly nice because as you as you say they actually have a, a, a swim bladder inside yeah which contains gas and unlike a shark or unlike a whale or unlike uh, anything else that swims um telios fish actually regulate their buoyancy point um, the, their point of neutral buoyancy by regulating the amount of gas in this bladder. They don't do it by muscular compression of the bladder, which I think they should. Um, <laughs> but it, they, in fact, they do it by by chemical means, changing the quantity of of yeah. gas in the in the in the bladder. But either way, they are a, a biological example of um, a Cartesian diver, which 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 is a similar little device you put in a bottle and, yeah. and regulate the. Exactly. By the by, but well, it's yeah, regulating the, the density of air, the density of a of a gas changes your buoyancy in a liquid. And I think, but I th so I, I think that I think in that sense, fish fly in the in, using a hot air balloon in the, in the yeah. same sense. Yeah. But more importantly, the reason, but but then the fact that you don't see any of them doing that in air, I think is really important because it really because the point is it's all a question of buoyancy. And it's just much easier to be buoyant in water. It's yes. a, it's virtually impossible to be buoyant in air, because air, you know, if you have if, if you're a material object, it's very very difficult to be buoyant in air because your average density tends to be greater than air. So the fact that you haven't seen um, animals um, develop that, I think, is a good example of the fact that evolution can't trump physics. Basically, yeah. If if it were possible to be buoyant, easily possibly buoyant in air, evolution would have. A, I think, you know, what natural selection would have found that as a natural mechanism. Well, I do, I do think consider the different parts of it. I mean, they, they some creatures make hydrogen, some make yeah. methane. Yeah. Um, and um, there also some make silk, which which could potentially could be, uh, um, and, but it just it, it's never been brought together. Um, a sufficiently small animal, I could imagine, uh, being light compared to its surface area. Yeah, um, but might when be you... able to make a silk a silk balloon, um, but but yes, it it is difficult, and and humans do it by. I mean, a balloon is a gigantic thing compared to the um, to the humans that it that it carries. The, the the basket is a little little thing strung underneath this gigantic great yeah. ball of of hot air or hydrogen or helium. Well, the the well, you do point out in this sometimes they almost like spiders that ride in the air you know they're throwing out this silk this sick they almost they almost well that's called that. ballooning but it's not yeah. ballooning it's, yeah it's, it's, not, it's it's very it's, it's right par it's parachuting it's paragliding or something well look i i there's so much to talk about here i want you, you i'm we talked about when you were writing the book but i mean I, i'm so happy you talked about weightlessness because to me it's my favorite misconception that people yes. have about if yes. you ask 100 people on the street why the astronauts float you'll find out yeah. at least yeah. 80, 80 of them will say that there's no gravity up there yeah. and 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 
And the, it's just the fact that the astronauts are continually falling. And you point yes. out something really neat about fleas, which is basically they're doing the same thing, right? Yes, yes. I mean, yeah. a flea, for reasons I don't know, has, has a spring-like structure and can jump and therefore basically is weightless for a long time. Right? When it's yes, weightless. that's right. That's right. Yeah. But but one thing I'd never heard of, which first kind of terrified me a little bit, was I'd never heard of aerial plankton. Um, um, and and um, the fact that they that there's all this stuff in the air that's all that's alive is kind of amazing. Yes, it's very high. Um, and um, I suppose the analogy with sea plankton is moderate. It's fairly fairly loose. It was studied by Alistair Hardy, who was the great authority on plankton in the sea, and he had this lovely lovely experiment. With an old bulldozer, Morris Carr, using it as a winch. To yeah, which you have a beautiful a kite, image of, yeah. Yes, fly a kite with them to catch aerial plankton. Um, it, it, it's how plants and animals spread over great distances, which is an evolutionarily important thing to do. Um, and um, yes, it, it, it's up there, and um, pollen grains and little tiny spiders and insects and things spread over huge distances up in the, in the high atmosphere. Yeah, and there's two things I want to say. One, one is, by the way, that intrigues me because you know there's talk about potential life on Venus, and which is an in, incredibly inhospitable place. Yes. But, but and and there was a claim, and it's now been shown to be wrong, but it still could be something like it could be true. If you look at Venus, it's it's incredibly inhospitable on the ground, but up in the higher levels in the clouds, there's the average density of the clouds is about the average density of water on Earth, and. So there was a claim that maybe life life could exist in the clouds of Venus, and and someone had claimed some group had claimed to seen evidence of a of a of a, of a chemical that might suggest that. It, now that's been discredited. Well, what about the gas giants like Jupiter? Um, is that also? No, I think the I think the problem there was that up that in in Venus it's not only the average same average um, density, but it's the same average temperature. It's less than 100 degrees. So you get basically similar conditions to, to Earth. Yeah. And you wouldn't get yeah. that in the gas giants. But in any case, yeah. the, the, um, the, the thing that's more important, and I want to get to it because uh, it, maybe it's a misconception of my own. You point out that the whole point of dispersal is, is, is important. And I would call it, although you don't use those terms, but I would call it hedging your bets. I think that throughout the book, the idea of hedging your bets is, is very similar, right? You put down a lot of different bets because... So a lot of them yes. are going to lose, but one of them, yes. one of them will win. And you say, yes. well, that's the advantage of dispersal. Yes. And, and, and you are, and you point this out, the beautiful mathematical theory of Hamilton, who I know you, you uh, love and, 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 and may as, as basically demonstrating that hedging your bets is always good. It's all, from an evolutionary perspective of, of, of propagation, yeah. of hedging, yeah. your bets. many of them will, will not end up anywhere, but some of them will survive. Yes. Um, especially if your place um, and something bad happens to where you are, um, the ones that have dispersed will survive. Yes. But what, what, and so that's great. But then you surprise me when you talk about pollen and you say pollen has to disperse because a plant shouldn't, shouldn't, you know, mate with itself. And, 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 and you point out that this whole question of sex and biology rather than cloning is, is complicated and, and not understood. And I don't understand why it's not just hedging your bets. Why isn't it exactly the same? Why sex isn't hedging your bets? Namely, mixing up the idea: if you clone, you may be fine and you can survive. But if situa but if you 
if you have if, if if things reproduce by sex they'll mix up their genes and some of them will be potentially better able to survive in a, if something happens in a that changes so i don't quite understand why this hedging your bets isn't a perfect explanation of why sex isn't preferable to okay clone. um th there are lots of books about this it's a it's a very um controversial active field and many of the models that have been proposed could be thought of as hedging your bets the the problem they all face is that the pressure to to reproduce sexually has got to be very strong in order to counter what's called the twofold cost of sex which is that if your aim as an individual is to maximize your genetic um, survival then cloning yourself looks twice as good as um, mm -hmm. sending half your genes off, off at, at a time. And, and so that's, that's the twofold cost of sex, which ah. was pointed out by Maynard Smith. And all these models, which are kind of hedging your bet models of different sorts, um, they all start out by saying, whatever our model is, it's got to be pretty damn powerful in order to, to um, overcome the twofold cost of sex. I, mm -hmm. I agree with you. I mean, I think, I, I think it is hedging your bets, but... Um, you, you've got to do the, get the sums right, and, and, and um, it's quite difficult. Yeah, so the economics is more complicated. Okay, yeah. well, look, we're, I, I know you have something. I'm hoping we can go. Can we go maybe 10 more minutes? Can you leave it? Uh, I guess that? so, yes. Yeah. I think so, okay. yes, eight, yes. Eight more minutes. Because one of the things you took, this, while pollen, the issue of why, pollen, why pants don't pollinate themselves is, is maybe complicated, the point is they don't. And and I, I can't couldn't resist. It would be... I, I, we have to talk about some of the amazingly ingenious ways that plants have learned to yes. seduce uh, uh, to seduce insects and birds and anything yes. else that will take the form. Yes. Uh, yeah. Because they're so fascinating. That, that, let, let me go into a few of them. I mean, that amazed me. One, basically, radar reflectors that that bats um, that that bats are uh, uh, help pollinate, help help take pollen from one plant to another. And and there are plants that are designed to be radar reflectors. I think they're called Mark. Uh, you, I don't know. I never can pronounce the name. Well, they're the, the sonar reflectors. Yeah, but, sonar. But, but, sonar. But yes, yes. Not radio. Yeah, so, okay. so they're kind of parabolic reflectors, um, which which would look to a bat like a great glowing beacon, um, because because the echoes would be coming back. Um, and there, there are some they, look, they look like yeah. a horn. They look exactly yes. like a sonar reflector. Yeah. Amazing. Yes. Right. Yes. Um, that's very nice. Yes. And then there's hummingbirds. There's 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 certain plants, this Passifloria mixta, that, that, why don't you talk about that for a second? Yes, okay. Um, one of the problems with pollination is, is um, it's a very hit or miss affair. And so, some plants do it by just showering the air with pollen. And, and the chance of any one pollen grain hitting the target, which is the flower of the right species is very low. But because you've shed millions of pollen grains, some of them do much better or from some points of view to have a kind of magic bullet approach where you target the pollen to, a, to, the, to the right target. And using bird wings or insect wings is a much better way to approach the magic bullet end of the spectrum because these insects and birds tend to go for flowers of the same color. Mm -hmm. So if, it, if, a, if an insect is going from yellow, 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 then the chances are it's much better than scattering to the wind anyway. Now, this um, hum, hummingbird and Passiflora mixta um, interaction, the sword-billed hummingbird has a beak that's so long that it's the only creature that can reach the nectar of this flower Passiflora mixta. Uh, and so this flower can more or less guarantee 
that only this hummingbird is going to, going to pollinate it. And this hummingbird concentrates its attention on the flowers of the correct species. This is a real magic bullet. And there's a lovely example of an insect that does the same thing. Um, and this was pointed out by Darwin. Darwin was writing a book about orchids. Oh, and, yes. and he was sent a, a specimen of an orchid which had a, sorry, a, ne a nectar tube, a, ne a nectary, so long that Darwin said, heavens, what insect can reach this, um, this nectar? And he, he predicted that in Madagascar, because that's where the orchid came from, in Madagascar, there must be a moth that has a tongue, I think it was 11 inches long. Um, <laughs> And Darwin died before the prediction was fulfilled, but, but after his death, an entomologist in Madagascar discovered this moth and gave it the subspecific name Predictar in honor of, of Darwin's prediction. Yeah, it's a, one, yeah, it's a wonderful story. And the, la the last example, I guess the other example I wasn't aware of is that they literally seduce, plants literally seduce insects uh, or birds by, by, oh, yeah. by, by emitting pheromones. And, and in some sense, acting like sex, par sex partners. So the, the, the hammer orchid, why don't you just talk about that for a second? Because I was uh, okay. This is a, 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 a group of orchids in Australia, um, which has a, um, uh, it has a kind of dummy female um, wasp mm -hmm. on, on a hinged arm with a kind of el elbow. And, um, the pollen grains are the pollinia, they're called in the case of orchids, they're great, there's lumps of pollen uh, are up above. And a male wasp, oh, the, the, the biology of this species of wasp is that, of these species of wasp, is that they, um, the females don't fly, but, the, but they just sit on, on stems and the males come and seize them and pick them up and fly with them and mate with them on the wing. So th what this orchid does, is it has a dummy female on this hinged elbow, hinged, hinged arm, and the, and the male wasp lands on this dummy female, tries to pick it up, and the arm hinges and slams the wasp, the male wasp, up against the pollinia about half a dozen times, slam, 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 slam. <laughs> Finally, um, the, the wretched male wasp gives up and flies off, and Without having learned a lesson, it'd be good to the same thing with another one, carrying the pollinia on its back. Uh -huh. And then the, the next time it slams against them, it deposits the pollinia um, on the. On, so this is a beautiful so, magic bullet, yeah. Yeah, and yeah, it's amazing. Well, look, the, the, I want to end because in the next few minutes by, by talking about hedging our bets, because you, you talk about, in my mind, again, one can use the idea of hedging the bets to get to the end of your book, where you talk about basically going to space. And, and, I, and I think you devote that particular book to Elon Musk because of his desire to, to populate Mars. I'm less, um, um, I think that's more um, um, fantasy than reality. But, but, but the notion that, that, that uh, once again, it's like dispersing pollen. The idea of, of of even if Mars is an awful place, what if something awful happens to the Earth? Yeah. Um, I, I think um, uh, it's a it's a, it's a it's an idea that people have pointed out, and the and the big example is what if a big asteroid hits the Earth, as will happen and has happened, and it's more or less guaranteed to happen again. Although we are in a position 
happily to be able to potentially deflect asteroids or at least find them early enough and deflect them. I'm less, I'm actually more optimistic that the world could do that than that the world may address climate change it, 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 because that involves just one group of people going to do it. But I, I think that um, the, the, diff, the, the example of, of human history of, or and, and, and animal history of always sort of going out, you know, moving to a new continent, traveling to new places, getting on a boat and traveling to an island and, 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 and the earlier explorers is a good example, except for the fact that the, um, when, the, when the explorers or the animals landed on the new island, they could survive. And, and the difference yes. is, that's the difference with, it seems to me, to, between traveling to Mars is that, first of all, the voyage will generally kill you. And, and it's not, a, it's not an, an environment in which you could survive in any easy way. And that, will, no. that means yeah. that while it's an interesting desire, it's not going to be easy. And I, and, and I think in the long term, you're absolutely right that if we, humanity wants to hedge its bets in the long term, Earth is not the only place it should inhabit. But, um, but to do it in, the, in Elon Musk's time frame is, uh, is, is like trying to inhabit, um, you know, move to Australia without boats. And, and it's, yeah. it's going to be a lot longer. And, and the difference is Australia, when you get there, is a perfectly good place to live. I mean, exactly. No, it's a perfectly good place to live. Yeah. It's a, it's a, in fact, I would say that the moving to the bottom of the ocean, which might protect you more against asteroids, it would be easier in some sense to live in yes. than, than Mars. Yeah. But, yes. but the end of the book, really, I think of Flights of Fancy is a beautiful name for the book, primarily not just because it's wonderful to read and the examples are great, but as a, as a, as a, as a scientist and someone who loves science and, and whose love of science is so importantly pervade in your writing, the, really, you end the book talking about science as a flight, what I would call a flight of fancy. That, and, and use the example, because you were at Starmus of, of, of uh, Elon Musk getting this Hawking Award. And it, it really resonated with me because, um, you know, Stephen Hawking wrote the foreword for my book, Physics of Star Trek. And the point about, he pointed out there is that science inspires the imagination. And as I pointed out, we will never travel with the USS Enterprise to distant planets, but we can always do it in the mind. And so the mind is somehow exactly. our, our wing. And we can, we, can, we can think about Mars and we can learn about Mars without ever going there. And, and so I thought ending this flight of fancy in reality with the fact that we as, as that science has become our wings, the wings that have taken us yeah. to see yes. the world from the beginning of yeah. time to the end of time. Yes. I was trying to express that. I wish I used the, those words. Um, oh well, it was yes. it well it, res, it 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 motivated me and inspired yes. me. So there and 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 you know, had we had more time, I wanted to talk about this other book, which is really four pieces in this other book, which really had the same idea in my mind, which is that yeah. science, the the central message, which is was the title of one of your earlier books, the magic of reality, um, and and so I. Uh, even though we didn't get there, I think there's that common thread in your writing and I think in my own writing is that we share that that fact that while we can't fly, we can do it in our minds. And, well, uh, exactly. And, and I think, I mean, we, we are due to meet in Arizona and to, to have a on-stage discussion. And so I would think maybe we could do that. Exactly, exactly. Anyway, as always, this was uh, wonderful to talk to you and, and I think it'll be fascinating for, it was, it was just a joy for me to read this last book and uh, it's always a joy for me to talk to you. Take Thank care. you very much, Lawrence. Bye-bye.
I hope you enjoyed today's conversation. This podcast is produced by the Origins Project Foundation, a nonprofit organization whose goal is to enrich your perspective of your place in the cosmos by providing access to the people who are driving the future of society in the 21st century and to the ideas that are changing our understanding of ourselves and our world. To learn more, please visit originsprojectfoundation.org.